0: our Amonkhet preview card, and a review of Eternal Weekend Europe on episode 64 of So Many Insane Plays. Welcome to episode 64 of So Many Insane Plays, our Amonkhet preview show, and Eternal Weekend Europe recap. I'm Kevin Crohn with Steven Menendian.
1: Evening, everyone.
0: If you have any comments or questions, you can tweet us at ManyInsanePlays, Plays, email us at So Many Insane Plays Podcast at gmail.com, or leave feedback on Eternal Central, MTGcast, or the Since this is a preview show, we're not going to do full announcements as we might normally do. We want to get right into the heart of the matter. But this show will have two major topics. First of all, our Amenket preview, which we're very excited about. Next, the Eternal Weekend Europe results, which we'll dig into. But first, Steve, uh, I don't think we need to beat around the bush at all here. <laughs> we have a cool and interesting card to discuss and reveal for everyone from Amenket. So, ladies and gentlemen, let me introduce Shadow of the Grave, 1B, instant, return to your hand all cards in your graveyard that you cycled or discarded this turn. That's it. <laughs> Where do we begin? <laughs> Where
1: to begin? Well, well let's let's there, start. At there the are beginning. so many things. Yeah, let's start at the beginning before we start. A very good down... place to start. <laughs>
0: um, first thoughts. What's your first thought? Well, the, thoughts, well,
1: the first the first thought is is the the concept and evolution of recursion. And mm. I think I think our our audience is interested in the has an interest in the history more than just a passing fancy in the history of the of the format and the history of magic. But this is obviously a form of recursion. But when I read this card and ruminated on it, it began a thought process about what do we really mean by recursion, right? Okay. And so just the first word in the rules box is the word return, right? Mm-hmm. That to me is vestigial. That is, <laughs> the idea of returning something is you put it back from whence it began, Yet, we know that a lot of the cards that have that phrasing don't actually begin in your hand at all. Now, in this case, they will. (laughs) But (laughs) there are cards like regrowth, right? Return a card from your graveyard to your hand. But you can regrowth a card that was never in your hand. (laughs) The same is true for, there's a a legend in in Legends. I forget what it's called. uh, Maybe Oakenshield that does
0: return. Add an Oakenshield, yeah.
1: Yeah, they're giving an archaeologist in antiquities I mean recursion is built into the into the webbing of magic from the very first set with regrowth in mm-hmm. in antiquities and legends, and in fact, recursion was one of the most interesting early strategies in the game, and the fundamental axis ar- around which that was built was time twister and regrowth, <laughs> so you had whole <laughs> decks built around playing Time Twister to refill your hand and regrowthing Time Twister and doing it over and over and over again for all kinds of loops. Uh, With
0: with Tormod's Crypt splashed in to deny your opponent the (laughs) recursive elements.
1: Exactly. Uh, But also... You know, using Fastbond and Fork and all kinds of fun things. So Recursion is a really—and Recursion was very, very powerful. I mean, in the very early years of the game, both all three, Regrowth, Recall, mm-hmm. not to be confused with Ancestral Recall, but Recall, <laughs> and Feldon's cane were all restricted because recurring restricted cards was viewed so, so,
0: as so abusive the right.
1: nefarious. So when I started thinking about this card, I started thinking about the role of recursion in Vintage. Obviously, graveyard strategies and reanimation strategies have a long and powerful lineage, going back to the reanimator decks of the mid-1990s to the present that dredge decks today. But recursion is so much bigger and broader than that. I mean, we might forget that one of the most powerful cards in the history of Vintage if and, and many people argued the most powerful, uh, although it's been a matter of debate, is a recursion card, Yawgmoth's Will. Mm-hmm. Uh, so one of the things I wanted to point out and focus on is the difference between what I call targeted or pinpoint recursion, like regrowth or even restock, where you target one, or re- recall where you target one or more cards, and what we'll call general or mass recursion, like Yawgmoth's Will or Second Sunrise or passed in flames right cards that target mar- multiple allow you to put multiple cards but also recursion itself has different elements within it so there's the recursion where you return things from graveyard to hand and mm-hmm. then there's recursion where it puts it directly from your graveyard into play like all mm-hmm. hallows eve or <laughs> or, <laughs> or second sunrise right yeah um and so it really don't forget got-
0: graveyard to library too the Soul Digger. Oh,
1: that's true. That's one I did forget. There's a, com- a completely another. So you can slice and dice recursion in countless categories. I suspect you could. Mm-hmm. You could talk about car- recursion. Car- recursion cards that return one card from your graveyard to hand or play. Cards that do multiple, like two or, or target rather. Cards that do mass. Um, and cards that that do it in different kinds of ways, like Past and Flames, where it only allows you to replay instants or sorceries, but right. you have to replay them. Or Second Sunrise, where it only returns uh, encha- um, enchantments, creatures, or artifacts and lands. Right. So there's <laughs> there's all kinds of ways you can slice up recursion. This card, I think, is kind of orthogonal to those, at least those particular categories, because the condition built into it is not a card type, although mm-hmm. there is a card type built in. <laughs> <laughs> it is the turn, this turn, and discarded or cycled. So this is a very unusual card. Kevin, in fact, before the show, you were well, telling me a particular anecdote about it.
0: It's not just unusual. It is unique. It's possible that this phrase exists multiple times in Amonket. We don't have proof of that yet. But the phrase, you discarded this turn, does not exist in any other magic card. <laughs> And the phrase...
1: (laughs) Wait, hold on, hold on. You discarded this turn. Those four words strung together in that sequence does not exist in the over, what, like 15,000 cards that have been printed in Magic? (laughs) Right. Now,
0: our audience will be keen to note that I'm paraphrasing, right, that you cycled or discarded this turn is actually how it's printed. That phrase also doesn't exist. But I'm paraphrasing for the purpose of instruction here. The phrase discarded this turn exists on only one other card...
1: Oh, I'm excited to hear this one.
0: Right. And uh, I'm going to pause just for effect here to see if our audience can even consider what card has the phrase discarded this turn that is already in existence. And I'll give you a little bit of hint. The word before it is opponent discarded this turn. <laughs> that card is from uh, from Shadowmoor. Dream Salvage for Demir instant, draw cards equal to the number of cards, target opponent discarded this turn. Prior to Shadow of the Grave, Dream Salvage is the only other magic card that we know of yet so far that tracks retroactively the number of cards that any player discarded during the turn. There are plenty of cards, of course, that watch while it happens and trigger or have an effect right when you discard. But at the moment and leading into Shadow of the Grave, Dream Salvage is the only card that does it at all. Shadow of the Grave is now the only card that does it for you, the active player. Very cool.
2: Yeah. Very cool.
0: Which leads us, of course, to a tactical discussion. But I'm not sure if we're ready to get there yet.
1: Yeah, and I'm not. I'm not sure. Not quite. Yeah. I, I I like the conjunctive and the pairing of cycled or discarded. That's very interesting to me as well.
0: Well, um, yeah, that's that's worth a whole conversation in of itself. But I you can. I think our audience probably can interpret the reason why. Clearly, uh, cycling as a cost includes discarding. So they could have, uh, and I imagine the initial wordings of this card yeah. just tracked discarded this turn without the cycling but since cycling is a major mechanic major feature of amonkhet my instincts were when i first read this oh they must have had problems in play testing with people either thinking that cycling didn't count as discarding or thinking that cycling and discarded discarding would double up some of these effects or something so <laughs> yeah and my initial reaction, as I think many others had, was recently validated on I think it was on Twitter or Reddit or both. I don't remember. Sorry, which? But uh, someone from Wizards had commented that yeah, it was a challenge in playtesting that if they didn't specifically call out cycling, that this abilities like this one were missed. Basically, if they just said discarded, people didn't intuit that activating cycling would activate a discard trigger. So anyway, it's a it's a playtest. Uh, compromise, I guess, is the best way to put it. But I also find it interesting that they have singled out only one keyword that involves discarding when there is another in Magic, multiples, in fact. First example that came to my mind is channel, specifically Mm. fairy macabre, for example. Mm. If you channel a card, it's exactly the same as cycling in that discarding that card is part of the cost. So this card has been selectively redundant in its wording in a very interesting way that is obviously a nod to the the, the common functionality in the Amenket set and block. But from a from a editorial standpoint, it's worth noting that any player who might have gotten confused by, say, cycling as to whether or not it interacted with this ability has the potential to get confused by channel as well.
1: So are you saying that the reason they said uh, discarded or cycled, an added cycled in there, was just for clarity? That is, yes. it's, it's it's strictly unnecessary, but they is. In, they included and, and, yeah. it for just player player ease or whatever. That's right. Players were so, not
0: were not thoroughly intuiting the relationship between cycling and disc <laughs> and, a tr- and a discard check. Well, yeah.
1: well, that reminds us that. Efficiency in phrasing or parsing is, or economy is not always the primary objective or that has to be balanced against other, other objectives. That is, rules text is not just about precision. It's also about clarity and perhaps more importantly, understanding.
0: Exactly right. And it's worth noting too that uh, channel is not the only ability.
1: It has a discard as an effect.
0: There was a cycle of legends in planar chaos, one of each color, that had a keyword that only existed in these five legends, and that is grandeur. And the short description of grandeur is discard another card named X, example, Coralash, Air to Blackblade, uh, search your library for up to two swamps, then put them into play tapped, or Terox Bladewing said Terox Bladewing gets plus X plus X, where X is its power. There was a cycle of them where, just like Channel, it's like a unique card specific version of Channel that involves. First and foremost, discarding another card named X. So cycling, channel, grander, these are examples of things that are all functionally the same as it pertains to using discard as part of the activation. But our card here, Shadow of the Grave, doesn't have a reference to the others. I would posit that it doesn't need it. <laughs> I would yeah, posit because that because the set doesn't the have odds doesn't of this card. Yeah. The odds of this card interacting with channel or grandeur in this set are near zero. <laughs> because if they were going to, the, the word, those words would be on here as well, be I think. But, yeah. inter, but using this card in Eternal formats or in EDH or similar formats that include those older, grander, and channel cards, that's part of the uh, strategic complexity and part of the use of the card. So watch out for that.
1: Interesting. Well, just in terms of potential cards that cycle, a, a quick search of Gatherer reveals 152 cards that cycle. mm mm-hmm. um, the, um, I didn't search for grandeur or channel, but I'm sure that you probably get close to 200. Um, the, the card that, uh, that also appears in the search for, with cycling is fluctuator, which itself does not cycle, but reduces right. is, is a two-mana artifact that reduces the cost of cycling by two. And at the time that it was printed, most of the cards that had cycling in it, built in had a, a cycling cost of two mana. Now, of course, that's evolved considerably over time. We've had <laughs> we've had uh cards that have a cycling cost of a colored mana, we uh, different colors of mana, large amounts of mana like the decree cycle. Um we've had um but which generate effects like decree of justice or decree of silence, decree of annihilation, which is my personal favorite. <laughs> um <laughs> there's also uh cycling cards like Street Wraith, which have from time to time actually appeared in vintage, um in Dredge. Uh, because Street Wraith allows you to trigger dredge because it creates a draw as well as you can exile the creature um, with uh, Icarid, because it's a black Street wraith is a black creature. Um, so those are just some of the cycling elements that have uh, that come to mind. There is another cycling card that I, I came to my mind as well which you may recall Kevin is the plane cycler. Um, it's a dragon that you you can cycle for planes. Do you remember that one?
0: Absolutely. Eternal Dragon, Type 4 All Star. That's it. Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and I think there might have been uh, um, a blue cycler as well that was like a late game blue control creature that you could cycle, although I don't remember.
0: I don't remember offhand which oh, one you're referring to in Shoreline, that case. Shoreline Ranger. There three, you go.
1: Or, yeah, Island Cycler. Um, yep. I think that may have appeared at some point in in the distant past.
0: (laughs) I think that was, I think that one appeared in block constructed. If I recall, I don't Mm. know. I might might be wrong, but um, obviously uh, magic's history is peppered with powerfully played uh, cycling cards. There was actually a hilarious fluctuator deck back in the day. That was a very glass cannon about as glass cannon as you can be that could at the time in legacy, it could beat just about any deck that didn't run force of will and then lost to every deck that ran force of will but so
1: so basically you just play a quick fluctuator and then cycle through your whole deck
0: yeah you played four fluctuators and I think it was three other cards that didn't have cycling including lands though oh. that's the thing is all the lands in the deck had cycling because oh. <laughs> there was a cycle plus a colorless <laughs> one in saga so you had you had 24 cycling lands that deck so as soon as you resolved fluctuator you could just kind of deterministically go through your deck depending on how many cards were in your hand
1: and what were, you, what were you what was their win condition
0: yeah the the win condition was a like a lotus petal and a dark ritual <laughs> and then and then this really obscure card called haunting misery which from weatherlight it, again a trivia for our audience if you can think of what haunting misery does without my reading it off then you win a, a prize As an additional cost to cast Haunting Misery, exile X creature cards from your graveyard. Haunting Misery deals X damage to target player. Wow. So the deck had more than 20 creatures with cycling in it. So you put all of them into your graveyard. That is super cool. Lotus Petal... Dark I didn't know, I haunting didn't know misery that haunting That's them all. super cool. Yeah.
1: Combos were so much more interesting before they printed storm finishers. <laughs> you had all totally these, true. these weird wind conditions like sickening dreams and the turboland deck and haunting misery right. and pros bloom and, <laughs> and
0: and the doomsday that uh, wished <laughs> into uh what was it? research and development oh i love that and, one yeah and then, then beacon of destruction too yeah, yeah
1: beacon of destruction is awesome <laughs> i guess it's a storm kill but still no, but it's, it's pseudo it's, it's cooler <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah um anyway yeah any you know there are actually cycling cards that do currently see or have recently seen play in vintage besides uh street wraith slice and dice i think might have been one of the most uh, recent examples that saw play within the last two years as i recall
0: yeah, Vintage has not been big on cycling. The most the most noteworthy one that comes to my mind, even though it's not a current thing, is uh, Rebuild, right?
1: Oh, of course, yeah.
0: And- yeah, Rebuild, it's not very much played anymore because of its efficiency, but for years it was a standard go-to. Back in the, the slaver days, for example, every, everyone had a Rebuild.
1: Cloud of Fairies saw a lot of Star City Game Power 9 top 8s in, in, <laughs> right. in their
0: early aughts. <laughs> Uh, equipped, in the hands of Mark Perez, especially.
1: Yeah, equipped with curiosity and in fish builds, blue-red fish deck lists, where right. it would you would untap your wasteland or factory and attack in. <laughs> um, so,
0: so we're we're veering from history into tactics here, Steve. Uh, it's pretty clear well, to you and I. I think that you can you can approach this card as a value engine. Yeah. In an eternal format like Legacy or Vintage. Well, and you can do that by trying to fill your deck, not fill your deck, but increase the number of cycling cards you have in your deck, but then also increase the number of the ways you profitably discard as well.
1: Yeah, Let's let, before we get into the specifics of, of the metagame, let's talk at an abstract tactical level. So yeah. Um, there are two ways essentially to discard cards. One is you have a spell or effect <laughs> that compels you to discard cards or your opponent compels you to discard cards. Historically, very few people discarded the cards willingly. I can't think <laughs> off the top of my head of a discard cost besides Bizarra Baghdad that, you know, um, that you would include. But there's... Well, what? that's not even technically a cost. It's not even... Yeah, it's not even really... Te- it's, just a, it's a consequence or an effect.
0: <laughs> well, and there are a handful of cards that... Uh, ask you to discard cards as part of their cost right. and then like get some yeah. yeah and get some but also those that get some scale uh the the effect is scaled by how many cards you did discard uh, odyssey block had a whole cycle of cards that said when you play this discard x cards then you do something x times for however many cards you discarded that kind of thing so there is plenty of that out there that was the the right cycle in, in Odyssey.
1: Yeah, I, I guess what I'm saying is the early it's keeping it abstract. In the early years of the game, yeah. you know, people discard was actually a strategy, but that's not hasn't really been a strategy in vintage in a long, long, long time. That isn't to you say mean,
0: th- there were, I'm sorry, you mean from a card advantage standpoint though, well, right? No, like I disrupting mean, scepter I mind mean, literally twists.
1: from a strategic perspective. There were decks that were actually discard decks. That is for him the Torak, okay. for uh, Hypnotic Spectres, you know, multiple disrupting scepters. You know, there were decks that were actually designed to make your you, you whittle your hand down yeah. to like they were if you look in the old baxter books they're filled with grids <laughs> of discard decks uh, right under know. the
0: premise though the premise was i mean obviously yes. it's resource denial but yes. the premise was to more broadly stated that the effect of discard could deny your opponent basically the, all other resources exactly right? if you made inverse. them discard aggressively enough yeah
1: yeah it's the inverse of drawing cards it's if you can deny your opponent a card, in effect, it's the same as drawing an additional card. Its card advantage is just determined another way, the opposite direction. <laughs> right. You know, the, the disrupting scepter is equivalent to drawing a card with J.M. Dayton. Not quite, but it's the same, similar concept. But But in right. recent years, you know, I think, Wizards has moved away from both discard and land destruction strategies. Virtually I mean, there are exceptions. There are certainly cards that make you I remember the fanfare that arrived when Gerard's verdict was printed, and yet Gerard's verdict had <laughs> almost no impact. Remember like Oscar Tan wrote about it. Remember that, Kevin? It was like the new him the Turok. oh my god. And I, I do remember that, yeah. And yet it did nothing. Um we most times that we discard it's usually of our own accord i would imagine that is we're discarding because for example like sickening dreams right there's a cost actually most of those dreams cards had discards as a cost right there was nostalgia oh yes that was sickening. another part that was uh there was the the compo- the blue that was another one that cycle yep. bounced cards psychotog made you yeah, discard turbulence. cards <laughs> yeah and then you get really crazy in the odyssey era when you had wild mongrel and psychotog with that could allow you to just empty your hand at will. <laughs> uh, oh yeah, it, it, you know, all you had to do was put it on the stack, <laughs> and and <laughs> there were obvious reasons for that. There was flashback cards and and madness cards and so on and so forth. That was kind of a, a big a bit paradigm shift in some sense, where discarding became much more. Mm, I'll say institutionalized, and it's not quite the right word, as, as a cost as opposed to a, a uh, something to be vigorously avoided. <laughs>
0: right. Well, th- and we still have plenty of effects in Vintage today that are available to make people discard. For example, thought Thoughtseize, right? That's a played Vintage card. But for metagame reasons, a.k.a. Mental Misstep, the targeted discard spells are out of fashion. Yeah, yeah, they're, that's they're, true. They have less utility than they ever have.
1: It, yeah, I don't want to create the impression that d- since discard as a strategy went away, there is not discard in the format. Discard still plays a critical right. role in the format. Graveyard strategies can continue to use, I mean, Dredge uses Cabal Therapy, which is, I think, probably the most played discard spell in the format, since Cabal Therapy sometimes sees play in combo um and certainly has appeared in Grixis Pyromancer decks and other token generating decks yeah. with black um but but also you know, and thoughts go ahead and unmask uh,
0: sorry i didn't mean to i'm sorry i didn't mean to interrupt you Cobble therapy is likely technically the most played discard spell but i will tell you what the candidate really is these days is thought not seer
1: <laughs> well th- is that technically discard <laughs> yeah. that's why i said technically about therapy
0: yes yeah. no thought not seer does not make you discard a card however <laughs> uh, in that function right that's probably the most played card but we're interesting we're, we're sidetracked yeah. now no uh, yeah. but uh, the other thing so you started talking about discard as a strategy and its place in the early game as opposed to now but the the notion of discarding your own cards for value is still alive and well in vintage right uh, and you need to look no further than jace friend's prodigy and Dak Faden, oh, for these kinds of things. Yes. yes. And then there are still a couple of restricted cards in Windfall and Wheel of Fortune that still see active play, and they are not so much categorized as discard for benefit, but discard as an acceptable cost for other great benefit, right? <clears throat> because yes. the decks that play them are are not always using them for the purpose of putting cards in the graveyard, even though Yawgmos Will pays you off for that. no that's so i good point i would posit that there's already plenty of places in you know the average vintage metagame today that feature discard as a as a aggressive disruptive element and discard as a uh, cost benefit
1: yeah but the point is that the the decks that seek to discard cards are actually trying to do so as an to create an advantage as opposed to Mm -hmm. making their opponent that is <laughs> you, you want to cycle through your library with those cards as opposed to doing so to punish your opponent. In fact, playing cards like windfall or wheel, the risk is that you turn on all of your opponent's good stuff, like yogg will or Snapcaster Mage yep. or the delve cards. So you really, I mean, discard de- is a very risky proposition in contemporary vintage. You, you
0: kind of, I mean, something of a minefield, it, isn't it?
1: It's a it is. I mean, the the one mind that you had in 1994 was Psychic Purge, which is a card that <laughs> that I ran occasionally in my blue deck sideboards when I was really scared of you know hypnotic specters and disrupting scepters and right. things like that. But you know wasn't a very good card, <laughs> but it was there you know to uh, to occasionally surprise your opponent. But um, but the point is that we are a long ways from the days of Mind Twist and Amnesia. Now people want to discard. Proactively as a way of building towards their strategic objectives. In this card, yep. in that function, could potentially have some real utility. That is, in a deck where you decide is designed to cycle through a bunch of cards. And I use "cycle" not in the technical keyword mechanic term, but in the uh, in the generic sense. Um, you could get some real card advantage out of this. So, just to make a specific example, for two mana, if you if you can cycle or discard four cards put them into your graveyard like uh this turn um that and and play this this can be a a, a really a four for one
0: so yeah if, it, a two mana drawing four cards be that's an unprecedented magic card i mean aside from ancestral recall such a thing basically doesn't exist
1: <laughs> right so if you activate bizarre baghdad and then cycle street wraith and play this <laughs> that's a four for one <laughs> <laughs> there are lots of other examples but i'm just giving that specific one yeah
0: Right. Well, and it wouldn't take much to graft this into some existing decks. Obviously, it begs the question, which we'll talk about, you know, do those decks want this kind of effect? But, you know, Dredge already does a good job of discarding cards thanks to Bazaar of Baghdad. Might not really be in the business of returning those cards to its hand. Yeah. So there's that. Yeah. And your your average mentor deck that plays... Jace, Vern's Prodigy, or Dak Faden is also in the business of profitably discarding cards, usually only one or two at a time, though. And if it's only Dak Faden going, and you play this and pick two cards back up, that's not that great of a value. No, That's only marginally better than Knight's Whisper, yeah. which is not played at the moment and has seen play in the past, but not playable right now. So we're starting to zero in on a threshold of utility, right? If you could reliably get three cards off of this then it's attractive if you can occasionally or even reliably get four or more cards off of this now we're talking about something that's unprecedented in terms of its efficiency
1: yeah the, the problem the fundamental and issue with it the... wouldn't yeah well, it... i was just going to
0: say it wouldn't take many more effects in a deck fade and jace friends prodigy deck to make something like that reliable but it's not always going to be consistently reliable of course right You draw two of these in your opening hand and Dak Faden's not in there. Well, you're just going to have to mulligan basically. So there's definitely a consistency concern.
1: You've just honed in on what I think is the fundamental issue, which is that to really abuse this, you have to use something else. So, you know, you have to use bizarre or you have to use Dak Faden or you have to use breakthrough. No matter what the issue is, you have to pair it with something. (laughs) It's a wine that you can't drink solo. (laughs) You have to pair it with something. And that, that usually does not bode well for Vintage Use. You want something that has potent in isolation.
0: Um, That's true. And a lot of the efficient cards that you would add to make this consistently more useful are not also the kind of cards you want to play, like Street Wraith, for example. Yeah. Street Wraith is not a good card for a mentor deck. It doesn't synergize with anything in the deck, really. It's not a spell, right? It doesn't trigger mentor. Yeah. You don't want to just pay your life when you're when you're in certain matchups that are threatening your life total, like playing against Ballista Shops or Dredge, right? So there are reasons why we don't already play some of these otherwise efficient cyclers. There's
1: another issue with it. So not just that you have to pair it with something else, but that the notion of recursion historically has meant you play this amazing spell, and then you get that amazing spell back. But you wouldn't really cycle or discard one of your better, best spells. So there is something weird about that. Now, there is... Uh, a, a case in which you would discard a good spell for example accumulated knowledge the first two you might want to discard <laughs> to get to the third one right but um but intuitioning for it is not discarding unfortunately if the phrasing was <laughs> went to your graveyard from any zone this turn that would be quite different
0: right you would have gifts right. and given
1: and intuition synergies built in um but sadly that is not to be here um
0: No, that's a very good point. And also, unfortunately, in the case of accumulated knowledge, there's not a lot of synergy to be had with picking all those accumulated knowledges back up. Yeah. (laughs) Right? If you could discard two of them, cast the third one, and then pick up the first two again, I suppose you could get somewhere. But that's a really delicate cycle already. (laughs) It's true, though, that there are still plenty of playable eternal cards that are not common in vintage that you could. Group them together to good effect. I'm thinking, for example, of Faithless Looting, and its older cousin, Careful Study. Those are decent cards, and they're certainly playable in in Modern, especially in the case of Faithless Looting, and occasionally in Legacy decks. I mean, like Legacy Dredge. So not so much in Vintage at the moment. Again, mental misstep rears its ugly head. But the point is, is there's there are certain value to be had, and you know there are interesting corner cases that. People don't think of necessarily for recouping the value of a, of a cost, but I have to tell you that activating a Lion's Eye Diamond with this spell on the stack would feel a lot like cheating.
1: Yeah. Well, I think... And, I, and
0: similarly, yeah. it, uh, similarly Mox Diamond comes to mind as the sort of card that's barely... Uh, that's, you know, it's just under the threshold of playable in vintage, I think. But if you could reliably recoup the cost, there's potential...
1: Yeah, um unfortunately dredging neither is not discarding either but but <laughs> right. you, you know lion's on him and breakthrough seem to me the most abusive that you know that is breakthrough is the most abusive in the sense that it draws four cards so you could pair it with with this card and get all the cards you lost back and four additional ones right so you could put the, put um shadow of the grave on the stack and then respond no, you, I guess you can't do that. You have to play Breakthrough and respond with Shadow of the Grave. No, that wouldn't work. That wouldn't work.
0: No, you'd you'd have to just resolve Breakthrough and then and have one cast card. Shadow yeah, you'd have grave. to pay one. Yeah. You'd
1: have to pay one more mana though. So it would be a yep. four mana effect. Um,
0: Wait, why would you have to pay one more mana? I didn't follow that.
1: Well, Breakthrough says draw four cards then choose X cards in your hand and discard the rest.
0: Oh, I'm sorry. D- absolutely. Yes, you'd have to play a, a Breakthrough for 2 and then Shadow of the Grave for 2. Yes.
1: Yes, for two overall mana. X equals one, right? Yep. Keeping your yep. Shadow of the Grave. Um, that could be a lot of cards. <laughs> 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 a, a lot. I'm trying to think of other cards that, that make you discard. Memory Jar also makes you discard, but I'm not sure if that's in a way that actually works with this. Um, oh, it absolutely does. Oh though. yes, it would.
0: If this yes. is if this is in your hand pre jar. And then you don't win the game that turn, which is a serious cost to begin with. Yeah, but you have to do it you in your discard end step. the rest to jar. Yeah, you, can you could effectively just take your whole jar hand. <laughs> the problem is at that <laughs> point is you risk you're doing it in your end step, and so you're risking just discarding for very little value. So I I mean that play is technically possible, but unlikely to be reliably good in the long run. Most decks that have memory jar are not interested in passing the turn just for a little bit of value. On on another note though, thirst for knowledge. Thirst for knowledge is a card that sometimes you discard just a single card, but sometimes you discard two, and if you were to group that together with at least one other effect, if you're to group a thirst and a Dak together, well then you're talking about potentially drawing four cards off of shadow from the grave. That's
1: true. That's true. Um, you know, I had forgotten about a careful study, but that's a card that just from a theoretical perspective, it really for one minute it digs really deep. I mean, it's, you know, Yep. Um, Unfortunately, strategic planning does not make you discard a card.
0: <laughs> no, that's a good point. It does not.
1: <laughs> but there are there are a, a broad, broad class of these three-mana cards like Compulsive Research and Thirst for Knowledge that also do make you discard.
0: Um, you could also think about just including cards that are uh, just looters for profit. And I don't want to go so far as to say merfolk looter, but we discussed in our Kaladesh review, I'm sorry, our Aether Revolt review, uh, Barrel, Chief of Compliance. Remi- There's a loot there.
1: Remind me what that one does.
0: Uh, barrel is complicated. Two mana, one three, instant sorcery spells you cast cost one less to cast, and whenever a spell or ability you control counters a spell, you may draw a card if you do discard a card. Mm. So I can conceive of and barrel has synergy with all the spells we're talking about because he reduces the cost. So he would reduce the cost of Shadow of the Grave. Too black. He would reduce the cost of thirst for knowledge. Yeah. Now, granted, you have to do a lot of that on your opponent's turn. I mean, so I'm I'm just talking about building up synergies here, not a, a reliable you do this, this, and this, then this. But if you had Barrel in a thirst deck, which is already a reasonable synergy, right? He reduces the cost. If you had also Dak Faden in that deck, which is also reasonable. Then you can get into scenarios, and and you'd have you know Jace for Prodigy, very reasonable in such a deck. You could get into scenarios whereby you have incidentally looted for three to four to five cards in a turn, if you mix in some counter spells and such, uh, such that Shadow of, Shadow of the Grave is a more reliable incidental value as opposed to being a primary uh, strategy. The the trick with Mox Diamond could be amplified in a Gush deck, for example, right? Mox Diamond. Easier to use when you're gushing your lands back to your hand. So it seems like, I don't know, it seems like there's a lot of incidental value to be had. But at the same time, it's hard to find the place where you absolutely want this effect in vintage in terms of being on curve and part of your reliable strategy. I could see a deck that had barrel and gush and JVP and DAC and mox diamonds and lion's eye diamond and careful study. And you could play game after game after game and never discard more than two or three cards in a turn, right? Just because of the way the game flows and you play this on this turn and then you do this and then you do that. And you're just never, maybe you just never get there. I think there are serious reliability issues for trying to simply use this card as draw X cards in a deck that does a lot of looting. <laughs> That's a
1: good point. I mean, it's when you think about it, there's been more, there's more looting or more broadly speaking cycling types effects in the format than ever. I mean with DAK and Jason's prodigy and you know to some extent you could say that bizarre functions that way. It really is more than I can ever yeah. remember, you know. It's not there well, might have been, been more there might have been more controlled discard in the past in the era of Psychotog, but there is more, you know, optimizing card optimizing effects than there were in the past, I yeah. think.
0: Well, I think broadly speaking that's correct. There was the era of thirst for knowledge. As we know, but that was just burst yes, looting, exactly. right? Exactly. It was just the thirst that did that, basically. Then there was the era of strategic planning, which was just trying to imitate the thirst, right? Yep. <laughs> and that's not even looting, technically, as we alluded to earlier. And Careful Study has never been a dominant strategy for, for very long in vintage. It's been played a little bit, it was played in Dragon, I think, a little bit. That's true. And yeah. a few other decks, but but I think you're right. In terms of just the simple draw discard. We're doing more of that than we ever have before. The other thing to keep in mind is that this deck that I've been theorizing about here that does a lot of looting kind of still needs a win condition. <laughs> and I don't know if um, a mentor deck, for example, is broadly not trying to play a long game or you're getting lots of value turn over turn, right? A mentor is trying to kill you with burst damage. They're trying to play a mentor, make a couple of monks and kill you as soon as possible. Drawing four cards for two mana would still be welcome in such a deck, but not to the point of casting a whole bunch of other spells that don't trigger mentor. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I I feel like the place that you want to be with this card is getting a lot of incremental value over multiple turns. Right. If you're not, if you haven't built a one-time burst engine, right? Yeah. If you built an engine, if you, you've got you know a wheel of fortune windfall deck where this is going to draw you seven or ten cards, then then maybe, but. There is kind of no deck other than Landstill right now in the format that is trying to just get incremental value out of drawing cards over multiple turns. Well, Landstill's the only deck that's that's even close to that.
1: Well, the Gush decks do that. They get incremental card draw well, over multiple turns.
0: I but I don't think that adding additional looting just for the purpose of having another draw 3 or draw 4 is going oh, to yeah, yeah. work with the way that Mentor is currently structured. That's
1: true, yeah. The, you, yeah. Um,
0: One of the, the older Pyromancer decks from three to four years ago, where you, where you couldn't reliably kill them the next turn or in two turns, right? Those kind of decks might have been more attracted to this, but that deck has been pushed out, unfortunately.
1: Yeah, Mentor has just sucked oxygen out of the room for that kind of thing. Even if they existed, it's hard to see this really being used in, in that kind of strategy. Uh, it's just so vulnerable to graveyard hate if you really are all in on it.
0: Uh, That's a good point that has we haven't addressed yet, and that is that <laughs> this really does get hosed by uh, the tor- incidental dredge hate. S- some of it, some of the incidental yeah, like, dredge hate. not all,
1: but tor- like Tor Mud Crypt and so on. Um, right. It doesn't get hit by Containment Priest or Cage, though, which is good. Those are, I think, the, the two most predominant forms.
0: And sadly, Oath of Druids doesn't count as discarding.
1: Yeah. <laughs> that would be quite Wouldn't that be a heck of a thing? Yeah. Um <laughs> It's it is hard to see how to use this in the current structure of the vintage metagame. You know, I guess the two ways to think about it are you build a deck you, you, you build a deck designed to cycle, like a fluctuator type deck, to get through a really tremendous number of cards, like a fluctuator deck really quickly. Or you try and build a deck that's built around the best combo with this card, like Breakthrough, and just try and maximize card advantage. And then I'm not sure what the win condition is, but it seems to me that w- one interesting aspect of this is that if you start playing multiples of these in one turn, each one brings back all the cards that you discarded in the initial initial instance, right? So if you if you play sure. if you play Breakthrough and this, and then you draw another Breakthrough, play the Breakthrough again, and play another one of these you'll get all the cards that you, even if you u- reuse them again, you'll still get the, them because you discarded this turn. In other words, if you returned a, I don't know, let's say you returned a Lotus Petal to your hand uh, that you discarded with Breakthrough, you can play it, sacrifice it, and use it, the second Shadow of the Grave will still return it to your hand because you discarded it this turn.
0: No, that's not going to be true, I don't think, because because the way uh, Magic treats cards entering zo- moving between zones... The second time you, if you play and activate that pedal, the rules see it as a as a new lotus. Really? Pedal. It, yeah, it's they not won't, the same they card. Won't identify that as the same one that you discarded. No, you would have to discard it again. Can we can we get yeah. the
1: rules changed to fix that? Because <laughs> 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 that's technically not what the card says, right?
0: Well, I mean, to a to a, a layperson reading, I completely understand. Yes, I did discard this lotus petal earlier this turn, but it's the same thing with creatures coming in and out of play, right? If you play a creature, return it to your hand, play it again, it is a different instance of that creature, and anything that had happened to it before would not be tracked, mm. right? <clears throat> so you would have to discard all those cards again okay. to get so the you're effect. You have you're not to have an get engine
2: cumulative effect from that. All right.
0: Correct. Well, I mean, the only way that would work is if you had some kind of engine that allowed you to discard them again, right? If you've yeah. got Wild Mongrel in yeah. play, then, then what good. you've said is true. Yeah, yeah. But no, that's a very good point, though, is that a card like Yogmoth's Will, which is well-known and well-understood in terms of getting duplicate usage out of resources, is much better at doing that when it comes to Black Lotus, Lotus Petal, Lion's Eye Diamond type things, whereas this effect of tracking what you've discarded means you need to discard it multiple times if you want to amplify the effect multiple times and i think that's a very important distinction is that you know yawgmoth's will has inherent synergy with these cards that sacrifice themselves i guess the only equivalent then to that with shadow of the grave is cards that inherently cycle themselves so your street race or anything else that had quote-unquote free cycling (laughs) That would be the equivalent to Black Lotus and Yogmoth's will is, I cycle this, I pick it back up, I cycle it again, and pick it back up again, right? Yeah. That's the equivalent, yeah. effectively. And as we've previously discussed, most of that is not playably good. Well, Street I, I, I know that Wizards good. is
1: tinkering with the rules for this set. I'm, I'm really surprised that they're not going to reconsider that, because if I cycle Street Wraith, and then I return it to my hand with this, and then I cast it, and I, let's say, sacrifice it to flashback Cabal Therapy, it strikes yeah. me that this, that was a card that was cycled. I should be able to return it with shadow of the grave. Um, according to well, the technical wording, but
0: I, I think, I think that that's kind of a Pandora's box. I think that opens up other problems if you try to do that. So I haven't thought the matter through well, you, myself, but, but I have a feeling is the, that's the not very going unique to
1: change. card. I mean, right. You said there's nothing.
0: It's it, unique, but, but it's not changing. An, it's not changing any rules of the there game. There are analogous yet.
2: issues. I mean, I, I, okay.
0: It's, It's unique, but not because we're creating new space. It's unique because it's a space that's never been used, right? Yeah, I guess, you know,
1: I've often tried to on-the-fly cite examples of instances in which Wizards of the Coast is compelled to create a new rule to resolve a card or interaction ambiguity. One of those was... enslaver. Yeah, that. um, There's also the issues of, like, split cards. When you play a split card... Or there's a card that, like, you mana drain a split card. What's the converted mana cost? The, the one half or the yeah. the total, you know, that, as I understand, I saw a notice today that the, um, the Matt Tabak is changing the rules of the game on that particular issue. But that's an example yeah. where you have an inherent ambiguity that is not resolved by an existing rule set, right? And so you yeah. need a new rule to clarify it or resolve the ambiguity. Um, to me... This is either this is not even ambiguity to me it's facially clear the card text says return to your hand all cards discarded this turn so if i discarded a card to me it shouldn't re- it shouldn't matter how many times it's changed zones to me it could have been exiled brought back with exiled you know like i could somehow i could <laughs> uh, i could exile a mist Hallow go- uh, mist hallow griffin to Food king chain goblins <laughs> bring it mm-hmm. back <laughs> uh, um cast it well, so, flash, and it should still be returned in my view with this card but I,
0: I i see your point but you're using a layperson's interpretation the 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 comp rules already have a reference to what i'm alluding to they already say if a card changes zones it's considered to be a new entity interesting they use the word okay. entity i i'm, I'm not going to read the rule to you right now but the point is there is established precedent here for example if you cast a creature let's say you've got i don't know let's say you've got two lands in play yeah and you've got a a Hope of Girapur, right? You've got a forest, and you've got a mountain. You cast Hope of Ghirapur off the forest, right? Then you return it to your hand, and you cast it again off the mountain. Then if you had an effect that said, did you pay green mana for a creature this turn? Or did you, I'm sorry, did you cast this creature with green mana? Then the answer is no. Even though previously this turn, you have cast this creature with green mana, right? I see. But the rules have tell you that if it leaves, it moves zones, it becomes a new entity, and it loses recollection in, of things that had happened in, to it in before in that
1: case what i would prefer rather than changing the rules to make some cards counterintuitive is the is a clarification this creature this time you cast it or something or some errata like that there's a simplified way of doing that you know when casting well, this creature except... in this instance you could just say like when casting a creature in this instance did you pay a green mana for it right well Be- you're because, right that's because certainly you can possible but you not you can play with... creatures multiple times the same creatures multiple times a turn with different sources of mana yeah
0: yeah That's not possible with Shadow of the Grave.
1: I understand what you're saying, but yeah.
0: Yeah, there's no alternate wording here that would clarify that (laughs) these cards were most recently discarded, right? Instead of having been cast and sacrificed. That's
1: actually my point. Which is that on its face, this is a card that's. Remember, at the beginning of the discussion, we talked about pinpoint versus broad or general recursion. As a as a broad or general recursion spell, its utility is is founded upon its capacity to recur multiple cards at once, and. So I I I mean I understand what you're saying and I understand the rules. Yeah. Clarify that by Well, obviously from a to...
0: value standpoint you're right. I mean yeah. that's, that's the value yeah. of this card. But but the precedent is already so set. Got it. So I think that I think that there might be more home for this in non-vintage formats, especially <laughs> those that allow you to play with four <laughs> lions eye diamonds for example. <laughs> um I I am not saying that this cool. is legacy playable. I'm not a legacy expert, but I can tell you that lions eye diamond uh, goes pretty well with this card, just from a face value interaction standpoint. Yeah, I think that I do think that Legacy has sim- similar issues that we've just described for Vintage, in that there isn't a there isn't a major cycling deck, there isn't a major looting deck that's already doing a ton of that. Yeah, it's there's it's... already Dredge in Legacy, so Legacy Dredge or Modern Dredge might be able to make good use of this card because those decks do more of the looting right
1: in legacy you could turn black lotus i mean lion's eye diamonds into black lotus with this card i mean that's essentially what you're doing like you play this on turn two with uh two black uh, two lion's eye diamonds you get all your cards back and you have now six mana to do whatever you want so
0: that's a good point and that that does that particular interaction kind of excites me i mean that's that's the sort of thing that it doesn't take much work after that point for your deck to really explode. And you don't have to jump through hoops to make that interaction work well. It just well, you have to have the two mana. It's, it's basically you have to have the two mana separate from the LED is really the only loop. Yeah, it's the
1: ill-gotten gains combo, remember? <laughs> oh yeah,
0: absolutely. Iggy pop. So so it could be that there is some some room to be had there in legacy, especially since that could that's also a four mox diamond format, right? Yeah. So four Mox Diamonds, four LEDs, and I don't know if Street Wraith is playable in this deck, but in theory, you could really juice up a dredge kind of interaction into something that can pretty reliably turn this into draw three, four, five cards, or maybe even more. I mean, who knows? You could could really string some interesting stuff together now that I think about it. You go, just starting with seven cards, you go Mox Diamond, uh, Faithless Looting, right? You're already down two cards, so you're down... You are down a uh, diamond land faithless. You are down three cards. I'm sorry. So you've got four cards left in your hand. But if you go a, another like a lotus petal and a land, you got two cards left. What if those two cards are shadow of the grave and lion's eye diamond? Hmm. <laughs> I mean, you've discarded then. Oh, that's not good. No, I'm sorry. That's not good because your LED at that point would be discarding zero cards. That's true. Sorry. Yeah, that's actually that's comically bad because your LED is getting you nothing. Yeah. You would be- get back the land from Mox Diamond and two cards from Faithless Looting that way. How funny! These well, decks that want to aggressively discard need to well, do so without losing card advantage every time, because otherwise you're you're just self limited in how many cards you're ele- you're, you're going to get back. That's really interesting.
1: Huh. well, it, it, I, I was thinking about a hip hop, and I remember one of the key cards was Infernal Tutor, which lions at Diamond, give you Hellbent. So there may be, right. yeah, it's. <laughs> so you would the idea was you would infernal tutor for with the two leds in play get ill-gotten gains loop it one more time and the next time you have lethal for tendrils right that's the combo right so it's hard to put that in here it's hard
0: well it could be but i don't know that's you make a fair point i mean that combo is still technically playable all the cards exist right uh and it could be that this is a role player in a deck like that that Certain draws where you don't have the four mana to make the, the ill-gotten gains go, but you get to two mana and Shadows of the Grave is good enough. I could see such a thing. It's still pretty narrow, but it is a possible application. Also, I find myself wondering uh, if there is just more basic cycling to be had that we're not thinking critically about. I mean, we keep going to Street yeah. Wraith because that right. card is, is so efficient, but it's also <laughs> not very functional in most of these decks. Right. I mean, I- Icarid notwithstanding. Right. And I wouldn't I wouldn't prescribe anyone to use um, Fluctuator, but there are other ways to discard for value that we haven't discussed. Some oldies, but goodies that include the card Foil.
2: <laughs> right? Yeah.
0: So in, in case you can't get enough Force of Wills, um, also Dream Halls comes to Ooh. mind because the cost on Dream Halls, unlike many other cards of its ilk, is not exile but discard the card. So if you chain together just one or two things with dream halls, all of a sudden this shadow of the grave could provide you really good fuel to continue.
1: That's a really interesting example. Dream halls, this could be the kind of card where the I guess this could be the kind of card where you could go real big in in potentially an infinite engine with dream halls. Um
0: because you're oh, no longer you know, you're no longer okay, dealing with mana. So,
1: you're no longer dealing with mana, so it doesn't matter, right? So
0: Yeah, and I'm I completely forgot. We haven't touched on this before just now. But you said infinite engine, and my first instincts were, you know, you can't go infinite. What are you talking about? This card doesn't exile itself. So when you cast this, it goes into your graveyard. Now you're not, you didn't discard it, but it's there to be returned by anything else that could return huh. a card.
1: Huh. So how could you go so infinite? So if you've got yeah. this
0: in conjunction, well, all you need is one kind of regrowth effect.
1: Well, you need a regrowth effect. No, no, that no gets I take two that two cards. Back. If You, have you have the need one kind of regrowth effect it gets two cards. Nostalgic Dreams is the answer. A Nostalgic Dream in this card can get you in actually well, infinite.
0: No, no, because oh, Nostalgic no, Dreams exiles, exiles itself. itself. Yeah. yeah. You need a regrowth that doesn't exile like itself. Like Gilgotten Gain. No, El- like I- Gilgotten no, no, Gilgott Gain
1: exiles itself as well.
0: <laughs> okay, there you go. <laughs> so you need something that doesn't exile itself, or you need a way to simply reshuffle. That's the other thing. Okay. Now you might say, well, reshuffling kills your value. Well, you would do that, though, only after you've gotten sufficient draw power to... To not need your graveyard at that moment right so time twister is a, is a candidate for letting you go infinite by itself but yeah. um hmm very interesting yeah. i'm
1: sure our lis- our listeners will come up with something <laughs>
0: yeah tell there's a lot of clever interaction tell here. us I'm what excited. the
1: infinite combo is with dream halls this card and mystery card <laughs>
0: <laughs> well steve uh we're obviously going to touch on this card and predict its actual play count in our set review but so I want to hold that for our actual Good. set review. I don't, I, don't want to, I don't want to give away that, that bit. But I'm interested to see what people can make of this card. I think it's I think it's probably more playable in Modern or Legacy than it is in Vintage. Because I think you can actually do more of the things that you want that really abuse it in those formats than you can in Vintage. I think Lion's Eye Diamond is a big pivot Definitely. point for Legacy. Yeah I, yeah, I agree with that. And I think...
1: And I also think there's a more I, more of a diversity of, of wind conditions potentially with this is a card that that as they print more and more cards that cycle its value can go up right as they print more ways to discard it's a it's a card advantage engine that uh, that it's a card you probably just want to keep your eye on for the long term and maybe there'll be a day yeah. where you can use it.
0: Well, there's no, I mean we could have a fluctuator like card um, in Amonkhet. It would not. I mean, it would not be much of a surprise at all, (laughs) right? Because the notion of simply um, reducing the cost on cyclers or or making you some other benefit or easing your cycling in some way seems fairly obvious and set the heavy on cycling. The card fluctuator itself is not reserved, so it could just be straight up reprinted or there could be another version. Uh, Now, I mean, the the flavor on a fluctuator is a little bit... um, a little bit ambiguous, I think. <laughs> I don't think it's tied to a plane exactly, but I could be wrong about that. Still, the notion of Amonket featuring a lot of cycling enablers and benefiters is something that we should obviously closely watch. That'll directly impact this card's playability in Standard, of course, but I can't help but shake the notion that the Dredge decks, for example, in Modern and Legacy, are far more keyed to casting spells. Breakthrough, as an example, right? Far more key to casting spells than the bizarre driven decks in in Vintage. And I think that plays right into this card's strengths. Any Dredge deck that happens to want to run four Lion's Eye Diamonds, for example, gets an inherent boost by this card just at face value. And it wouldn't take much work to really amp that up. So I'll be very interested to see. And the rest of Amonkhet, which we don't have the luxury of knowing, you and I right now, will influence that a lot, I think.
1: Looking forward to it.
0: So we'll cover the card again in our set review, but until then, we're going to move on and talk about some important tournament results from Eternal Weekend Europe in Paris last weekend. Steve, we have another eternal weekend results and the top eight is fascinating, the metagame is fascinating, the first place deck is fascinating, uh, where to where to begin. <laughs> well let's begin know?
1: let's begin here, right? So in the most recent Bin Restricted List announcement, which was what was it, March something that we discussed in our last show, the DCI specifically said that they were going to pay very close attention to this event to guide and inform their decision about what to do about vintage, if anything, right? Right. So I say all that to say that this event has special significance. (laughs) They said they were going to be watching the tournament closely, and they're going to continue to listen to feedback. So I think this event is very important. And it's not only just important because of what the DCI said, it's also one of the largest paper vintage events of the year. In fact, this was significantly larger than last year's first uh, European Vintage Championship. For first eternal weekend. It was over 150 players, Kevin, this event. And last year's I think was around 80 or 90.
0: Yeah, well, that's good. I I, I encourage the European community to keep growing this event. I I'm mean, in, I'm in, I am encouraged that the attendance has gone up, especially since there was something of a scheduling conflict with uh, on other events that same weekend. So I'm glad to hear that they had an, an increase in attendance year over year.
1: So one of the things to bear in mind about paper vintages, of course, there are real-world constraints. So the metagame, there are economic constraints, that is, because paper cards are much more expensive than Vintage Online, Magic Online. So we would expect the metagame to be slightly different than we would expect, say, from a daily result. That is, expect to see more unpowered decks and budget decks and stuff like that. Just as in our last Vintage Championship North America report, we talked about a, a more-than-usual number of budget or Tribal Eldrazi. So we'll tell you whether that actually panned out, but we're really grateful because they did an excellent metagame breakdown here, as well as we can, we're can. we going to go through the top eight deck lists. Kevin, would you like to start with the metagame or the top eight?
0: Let's start with the metagame, because I think that informs the significance of the construction of the top eight then.
1: Sounds good. Uh, we'll just note, though, that they broke down the metagame slightly differently than I think we would, or has traditionally been broken down, but we'll we'll do our best to translate so so, <laughs> so kevin why don't you take it away
0: okay so they have three high level categories aggro control and combo Uh steve said we wouldn't necessarily have broken that down this way ourselves but you'll see the mapping of decks to our usual uh arrangement so aggro 34 percent in total and individual decks under the heading include mud at 13 percent there's your ballista shops decks your car shops and by the way that's
1: very consistent with what i think we saw at the last vintage championship right eternal weekend north america i think it was almost exactly that i think it was literally 13 percent, if i recall correctly after
0: after that we have eldrazi aggro at eight percent and it's not clear whether they're unfortunately yeah go ahead yeah sorry sorry you and i are about to say the same exact thing sadly we don't know how that's broken down amongst white eldrazi and tribal eldrazi we don't have that information but eight percent in total for eldrazi after that, Hate Bears at 6%. And again, we don't have a breakdown of colors there, but you have to imagine that most of those are green-white X uh, Hate it, Bears decks since that's the most dominant strategy. And we can see that it, it's
1: not Merfolk because Merfolk is 2% and it's not Fish, whatever that means. So this is probably non-blue Hate Bears. And I'll note yeah. that the, the deck that won last year's European championship vintage european championship was hate bears so i can imagine that explains why there's so many hate bear decks in this field
0: yeah six percent is major (laughs) overrepresentation for the hate bears archetype (laughs) across vintage lately and i steve i think it's twofold reasons i think one of them is as you said the deck won the event last year so i think some people may have even brought the same list i I really don't know but also budgetary reasons right hate bears in uh, certain configurations can be a budget deck and uh, a few of these probably are next up Okay, so that was 13 for mud, 8 for Eldrazi, 6 for hate bears. There's a, a sizable drop off then. The rest is in the aggro category. Blue red aggro at 2%. Now I I am speculating because of the title here, but I would expect that this is mostly Delver style or blue red young pyromancer type they're, they're decks, probably 2%. Gush decks. Yep. Yep. Then Murfolk also at 2%, then fish <laughs> at 1%. No no I'm oh, sorry. It's noteworthy that fish and merfolk are not the same thing in this categorization, which suggests that fish, quote unquote, is probably more like bug, I would guess. I would
1: guess blue-white agro control, but... Okay, well, like, we're
0: going to just have to yeah. not know the answer to that for the rest of our lives. <laughs> <laughs> Next up is Canadian threshold at 1%, and then other agro at 1%. So the top performers in the agro category, mud, not performers, sorry, the top representatives in the aggro category. Mud at 13%, Eldrazi at 8%, Hate Bears at 6 So the, the overall the next,
1: Mud slash Eldrazi is 21%. That's the
0: important thing. The, the, the Thorn decks, yes. Yes. The next category is the largest, which is Control. The Which is top 40, deck
1: there 46% is, of the metagame, by the way. I'm,
0: thank you. I, I skipped that. 46%. The top deck there is Monastery. They call it Monastery, which are their mentor decks, at 20%. It's 20%. unfortunate
1: we don't know what percentage of that is gush and what percentage of that is say paradoxical outcome my guess is that probably it probably around 90 percent of the monastery decks are gush decks but not but certainly not all i mean yeah th- there's that's
0: that's completely right
1: yeah probably it's it's i mean there are you know the, there is paradoxical mentor and then there are other decks that sometimes run mentor in two or three i imagine they're thrown in here so we're probably yeah. i would say probably Eighty to ninety percent of those are Gush decks, but not all.
0: Yeah, I would I would agree with that. The next at eight percent is Oath of Druids,
1: which is just right in line where we typically see Oath in these big tournaments. Yeah, in fact, wasn't Oath wait Oath was overrepresented the North American one? Remember how we were it surprised? Was. was that was it ten percent or something like that, or was it twelve? I guessed eight percent, and I think it ended up. You don't recall?
0: I, yeah, I don't remember the exact number either, but I do remember exactly that it was overrepresented, and so I think i think in north america we might have overrepresentation of oath because of brian kelly's performance no doubt. right no doubt yeah <laughs> so and then shuhei in the vsl right so anyway um third in line on the control category is bug control which at i assume those are mostly just decks. Oath.
1: yeah i assume those are mostly leovold decks yes but not necessarily yes. And all, I assu- but-
0: uh, well yes and also i think there's some dangerous categorization in differentiating bug control versus the fish category yeah. under aggro, yeah. because it doesn't that's take many think... cards, yeah, that, yeah. That's why I think it doesn't take many cards to turn a bug control deck into a fish deck. So there, there might be some overlap here, but right. I think you're probably right. <clears throat> that's at seven percent. Then there's a big drop off. The rest of these are small things planeswalker control, which is almost certainly Grixis, right? Yep, two percent. Then there's uh, a surprise, and I wish I had noticed this earlier. Stacks control <laughs> yeah. at two percent. So that that brings our so, workshop
1: thorn component to twenty three percent.
0: yeah, yeah. So there's some more thorn decks there. These are probably, obviously, uh, smoke stack decks, but possibly uh, null rod workshop yeah. decks also. After that is one percenters, uh, landstill, gifts control, and then oh. These aren't sorted by number. Then there's other control at 5%. Which I imagine <laughs> so I imagine more. that can
1: that includes like big blue decks. You know, that's not yeah, gifts. Y- that's not Planeswalker. Really the big blue decks are the Planeswalker, the the gifts and these other control decks. So
0: for a total of 8% exactly. give Exactly, which take. is
1: exactly in line with what we normally see.
0: And yeah, we saw that in the North American Eternal Weekend as well. These and are the, the kind MTGO of decks that R9s. certain yeah, and certain stalwart players just sort of always bring the Jace deck, right? Yeah, a, a small percentage of players just really uh, gravitate to that. The remaining, uh, sorry, the remaining category then is combo. I will nineteen percent. I'll note
1: though they put Dredge in this category. Yes. I consider Dredge to be more of an aggro deck than a combo deck, but you know, I mean, Dredge is technically an aggro Still. deck. It's a it's an aggro, it's a graveyard recursion yeah. deck, but but <laughs> it's okay. We'll just roll with it. Um, we'll roll with
0: it this category is very splintered and small the the largest representative is storm at five percent which i assume they
1: mean like dps style decks
0: uh, yeah, I would assume so too, but we don't entirely know whether Paradoxical Storm that has a couple of mentors in it landed in this yeah, box no, I, I, or I, I in think, the mentor box. I think the box.
1: Paradoxical combo decks are probably here as well. But you're right. Yeah, there I, could I sus- be. I suspect that the ones with like three or more mentors are in the mentor box, and probably one yeah. mentor and tendrils are in the storm box, but that's how I would sort it. So I'm projecting yeah, not the ones with, this. Right.
0: And the ones with all their mentors in the sideboard are probably down here as well. Yeah. Anyway, that's 5% Storm. Next is 3% for dread. By the way, that's a very low number. Noteworthy. That's a very low. That's a very low number. And we'll talk a little bit about that when we talk about the top eight in the winner also. <clears throat> then after that is small stuff. Belcher at 2, Gifts Combo at 1, Doomsday 1, Gush Storm 1, Bomberman 1, Remora 1, Remora listed under Combo, noteworthy, and then Other Combo at 4%. Which is impossible which,
1: to what they know what they mean. <laughs> <It's> just... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Especially when Remora and Doomsday
0: and Gifts and Belcher are all listed yeah, separately. Yeah. I mean, maybe maybe there's a Fluctuator deck in there, I don't know. <laughs> or but, more um, likely a
1: Turboland deck. No. <laughs> right. So, let, so let's recategorize this, though. Let's summarize. Yeah, let's summarize. Yeah. So the, the most represented deck is Mentor, which I assume, assume means Blue-White Mentor, Dr- Jeskai Mentor, sylvan mentor, esper mentor, all the gush flavors of mentor and paradoxical mentor. And then probably whatever yeah. deck exists that has, you know, three or four mentors in a control deck. The second biggest deck right. is mud, and so mud in mentor being the most dominant pr- predominant is very consistent with what we've seen at the Vintage Championship North America. Um at 13%, followed by really at 8 8% is the next most popular deck, tie between Eldrazi Agro and Oath of Druids.
0: And this is this which is, is I mean, pretty much what we saw in North America as well.
1: Exactly. Although I would I think yeah. m- I consider stacks control in the mud, so it's really 15% yeah. Adrazi Agro. The big question here is what's likely the total percentage of gush? We have to speculate. So I would say that if let's just be generous, a 9 out of 10 of the mentor decks are gush, that means 18% is gush. Then I'll add yeah. all the blue red aggro, just to be generous again, that's 2%. We we don't know if it's like 1.56% rounded up to 2. You know, so right, right. and we'll add doomsday. So gush is probably around and adding a couple. It's probably around 23-24% of the metagame here, probably around there. Kevin, would you estimate that?
0: Um yeah, I think you're doing a lot of rounding up there, but whatever. I I would have well, the point, I would have landed on 22% or less. The point <laughs> is it's
1: not a, it's not it, it, in in North American Vintage Championship, I can pull up the results. The Gush decks were not more than twenty five percent. I don't think, but let me verify that. Right. What the you know I don't think that the DCI usually looks at the usually what they want to look is penetration. That is, they want to see given the representation of the metagame, how the decks perform? They're less concerned, yeah. I think, with representation of the metagame as a whole, because you could be you could literally be fifty percent of the metagame, but zero percent of top eights. That would present no, <laughs> that would present no policymaker concern. So,
0: yeah, we this that overlaps with our discussion in the last episode about what it is that what metrics they truly use to measure. And you and I concluded that we have no evidence that they're actually using full metagame breakdowns to make policy decisions. It's not impossible, but everything we've seen indicates that they're primarily looking at top eight performance.
1: Yeah, I'm now looking at, at North America. Um, in the event Gush was in, in North America, vintage championship. Gush was 22.2%. So that's right there you go. Right where you said, Kevin. Shops was 11.7%. Yeah. Eldrazi was 18.1%. So, wow.
0: I did not remember it was that high. Neither did wow. I. We might
1: not have had Jeez. that data. We, we had the top 64 data in 30, 32, but I'm not sure we had the full event data when we did our first breakdown. So So
0: what's what would you say the thorn it, total, it, the taxing total for the, the North America was? 30%. Probably. And here, if you combine mud, eldrazi aggro, and stacks control, you only get 23. Yeah, there could be plus or minus some, some in some bearers. of these other categories. Yeah, some of the hate bear stuff. Yeah, oath, You could have thorns in a hate bear deck, but maybe.
1: Oath also, it the interesting dredge at the North American was 6.4 percent, and oath was 12.8 percent. So there you go, both 12 percent. That's what yeah, it was. Both yeah, both of those were much larger than.
0: I think we we predicted something like eight to ten percent for O's yes, maybe, yes. And we're surprised by the twelve, <laughs> right? That's right. And dredge is very underrepresented at three percent here in the that's European the lowest I can results. Remember. Really, that's really that's shocking, very low, yeah, low. especially for a non-proxy event.
1: Exactly. I mean, you would think that people would be able to loan out their bazaars and go all in, but
0: yeah. Well, at any rate, so the the top two categories that we've been you know monitoring for the last umpteen years, it seems like. It looks like they're approximately tied if you... Okay, so if you, if you separate workshops, the total workshops appears to be 15%. The total Thorn decks, if you add in the Eldrazi Aggro, appears to be 23%. The total Gush decks, if you combine Monastery Mentor, take out some Paradoxical Outcomes, speculatively add in some Blue-Red Aggro, appears to be... I, I'm getting about 22 to 23% to my eyes, but that's... Well, it's, we're well, estimating well, here.
1: What do you think that pretends to you? I mean, does you... Does, did that metagame seem balanced and fair to you, or does it seem out of whack?
0: I mean <laughs> it, it seems completely with it seems completely in line with everything we've observed for the past few months. There have been wild fluctuations month over month online and in paper that have pushed those respective groupings up, you know, above thirty percent in some cases and down the single digits in some cases. But I would consider this in terms of the heavy hitters, you know, the top three or four archetypes in the format. I would consider this a pretty median result, but I'm, I I mean, there's, there's more, there's more uh, hate bears decks and it's, (laughs) it's, you know, taking, there's more (laughs) other combo decks than I would expect. Right. So it's, it's taken some of the oxygen out of some of these other archetypes, I think, but this is not a surprising result in my eyes. 20 ish percent gush, 20 ish percent, uh, thorn decks, a fair bit of noise because it's an unsanctioned sorry because it's a sanctioned event and so there's some budgetary constraints going in here and this is what i you know what i would expect from vintage these days i would have expected a little more dredge a little less hate bears
1: well my question my question for you though is do you think this is a do you think this metagame seems ba- like if you're the dci looking at these results just the metagame breakdown we haven't got to the top eight yet yeah do you think this looks healthy to you or problematic
0: I think this is helpful. to I me. Do too. It's I hard. Mean, it's hard to observe. You've got a single deck that's at twenty percent, which is multiple, you know everyone lots agrees. Of decks, uh, yeah, yeah, a deck to beat. But twenty. But twenty percent is twenty percent is you know it's under the threshold for for a problematic uh, representation <laughs> in my eyes.
1: I agree. I just I was just curious. Well, let's turn to the top eight deck list then. Unless you have any other yeah. comments about this, I think it's pretty much in line with what we've seen. I, I want to yeah. point. This was this is a comment I was wanted to make earlier, but I want to point something out out. Very funny about the top eight. So before this is n- nothing to do with the deck lists, but the age of the players in the top eight is first place, first through <laughs> eight, 38 years old, thirty six, thirty six, thirty six, thirty one, thirty three, forty four, thirty seven. Wow. Do you know what the average of that is? I haven't done the calculation, but it's probably around 38 right <laughs> it's pretty amazing <laughs> this is a for- that's interesting this is a format that is aging before our eyes you're right um and how many I- of
0: these players are regulars in the european community right and have been for a decade to your point right and more than a decade but have been for a decade or more right exactly and and you can see a similar thing in the north american champs for the past Decade, right? Yes. You see similar faces we're, we're, in the top eight and we're sixteen. We're all in that
1: band. I mean, Kevin, you and I are in that in that band. And so I, I just did the math, and apparently the average of all those is uh, thirty six point three seven five. If I've done the math correctly, <laughs> that what's interesting is that band though, from thirty one to forty four. I mean, we're both right in right in that band, and uh right. you know, <laughs> I, so are many of the people that I know, like you know. Brian Kelly, Rich Shea, you know, they're right in that band. It's almost as if the people who play vintage are the people who came kind of middle school, high school when magic emerged, you know? And it just, it's just, I don't know if that's coincidence or what, but it's, which tells, suggests to me, this is, I wrote an article for vintage years, uh, for Star City Games years ago, in which I argued, what what triggered this article was, years ago when I visited Wizards headquarters, um, to discuss some policy issues, um, and I wrote about it in star city games uh, article. Um, one of the things that struck me was they had panels on the walls that had uh, player psychographics like demographics and the psychological profile, and it said like mm-hmm. twenty five years old the retired magic player and I remember being struck by that <laughs> yeah yeah, exactly, and I remember being struck by that and I uh, wrote an article about kind of the future of vintage, and I did a a survey on the source, which is the Made Hub for Legacy and the Mana Drain, and I asked people to just put their age in, and I published that in this article, the results. And I and then there was a, a, a consulting firm, I believe, that did a demographic profile for wizards that had the average age of a Magic player, and I did a comparison, and basically, I don't remember the results, but I wrote it all up. The average vintage player was something like five years older than the average Magic player, and the average Legacy player was like four years older. And so it was a scaling effect. Vintage, the mm-hmm. oldest. At the time, I was basically saying, look, vintage is a format that people will be able to enjoy for a lifetime. And I think I believed that, but I also thought that there was probably a limit to how... a, a probably like an upper bound to how old pe- the average age would get for the vintage player. That is, that was probably in the early 30s or mid-30s. Now... Right. I just don't see that limit fitting there at all. There's two possible ways Vintage can evolve. One is that, so, I mean, it's been a couple of years since I've seen or personally interacted with a player at a Vintage tournament who I think was 18 or under. I don't recall seeing kids. Now, they pro- there probably was a young person or two or maybe a couple at the Vintage Championship. The 500 players, <laughs> you know, would have 300-some player tournament in, in Columbus. Right. I just don't remember seeing them, and I certainly haven't seen any at my local events. That is, the vintage players I see, they're all in their 20s, 30s, and 40s, maybe even older, you know, and and I guess what I'm saying is that I think that the band, the age band is continuing to rise, and I think eventually, as Magic becomes a kind of multi-generational game, I think vintage is going to have the oldest cohort, continue to have the oldest cohort, and I think it's going to blend with other perennial games like chess or backgammon. In other words, we could at yeah. some point see an average age of mid-40s or even early 50s at some point, like for vintage. I don't think that's out of the realm of possibility. <laughs> you know, if you've got... And part of it is because the cost of playing paper vintage. I mean, how can someone who's 18 get into it? The only way is paper, is online, right? <laughs> and and if you play online, how frustrating would that be to be like, I will well, never be able to play this in paper unless I inherit it or someone lets me borrow <laughs> these cards, <laughs>
0: Uh, I I ha- I agree with what you're saying. I have interesting thoughts about the long-term future of magic that are out of the scope of this discussion. However, I agree with what you're getting at. I agree there are, there kind of appears to be no upper bound within the bounds of actuary science. Right. There there really appears to be no reason for me and a lot of my peers to stop playing vintage. Exactly. I mean I, I know that's a loaded we, statement. You and I both have but, extremely
1: demanding jobs. I mean, we work a lot of we. Yeah. I mean, and and so do other our peers. And we have yeah. wives, significant others, partners, <laughs> children, families. Families.
0: Uh, is I mean, <laughs> most of most of the Michigan area vintage players are are have families. Yeah. This is you know regular nine to five folks. They have kids. They go home. They make time for this kind of thing. On a weekend, and that's, you know, once or twice a month, maybe. Yeah, that's
2: the
1: appeal of Vintage. Is it's it's a way of experiencing magic where you don't have to learn the the bicycle every couple months. You just get back <laughs> up on it a couple times a year and ride, right? Ride, yep. maybe ride. And it's enjoyable. It's fun. <laughs> that's why Vintage should... should the DCI is, is explicitly... Remember the DCI have explicitly told me it's not a format... It's a format that should not change quickly. Should not.
0: Yeah. Well, and so there's There's a whole lot of related topics here, right? one of which was the article that you described last episode about how people experience the format right, and how that bears on your impression of the format, the pace of change, and banded and restricted policy yes. that kind of yes. thing right yes but i I do predict i do predict that there will be an ever widening gulf between the demographics of online and paper players. it's inevitable it's in- yeah and and I don't say that as a bad thing no, either. It's I just, just mean, math. to your point. <laughs> Right. If any player is going to join the vintage format, then it's increasingly they're incentivized to do so online. And I also think that Wizards, if they're intelligent about their business model for how they promote formats in the long term, and I don't want to comment one way or the other on that, but it's in their interest to promote the online product over the paper product for for everything that isn't standard, right, in the long run.
1: Well, that's so you're you're bringing up the reserved question, the reserveless list question. But the point is, I, one of the implications of what you're saying is the cost of paper vintage is in some way dissuasive to people who would play it online. In some ways, because even if you really enjoy playing vintage and magic online, it, at the end of the day, it's got to be frustrating to re- really enjoy the format and not want to acquire the cards really I mean a deep level right and compete and compete in these eternal championships I mean
0: I I think I think what you're saying is true but only for a subset of players and I don't wish to speculate how large that subset is but I but I do know there are players who simply prefer to play online or only could ever play online so what you're saying is true but only to a point
1: well it it will be interesting to see how these things evolve over time but what I now see if just looking ahead Kevin is I look I think that we are going to continue to see the average age of the vintage player rise, and I just don't see a large. Yep. It's not. Cl- it's not clear to me there's going to be a, a large influx of players who are 18. I think maybe in a decade or so we could see some 20 or 30 year olds getting in, but even then the cost of entry is enormous. <laughs> I just I think the best way to enter is really get hooked on Magic Online, but it's it's hard for me to see how this how we get a, a large new demographic in. That's what I'm guess I'm saying.
0: Well, I mean, it would, the similar issues exist for any format as it as it grows older, right? Um when it's not supported by Wizards with regular competitive play and that kind yeah, of thing like exactly. legacy. Legacy still has a GP every year though, right? Yeah, that's the big but, big difference. But really this there are a lot of competing issues here, right? You and I know that vintage is a fun format. It's it's exciting, it's it's energizing just to see it played and then to try it out for yourself. But when push comes to shove, the online experience doesn't have a lot of that energy today, just because the player base is relatively small. the The daily tournaments are are good for practice and they're competitive, but they're still small. The premier events are similar, you know, they're they're much larger than a daily event, uh, but the prizes are not very very exciting, right? Right. I mean, right. It's, It doesn't nearly yeah, compare to the cool <laughs> prizes you can get when it's something like an Eternal Weekend. Yeah, it's
1: exactly. People are well. People are playing an Eternal Weekend pride not profit either though i mean you're not i mean it's not it's not like you are you know i'm a shark magic player i'm gonna just enter eternal weekend i don't know anything about vintage or legacy but i'm just gonna play in these tournaments because i'm incentivized (laughs) by the prize pool right no that's not how it works (laughs) right this is not like a fifty thousand dollar prize exactly
0: (laughs) right and i completely agree with you um but when you take that away you know that notoriety and that that title right then there's not much there's not much on that scale that the online has to offer at this point, right, so there're as I said before, lots of competing issues about what's going to draw people online and wizards policy and you know their goals for a format online will factor heavily into that future. There's just no two ways about it agreed whereas whereas there is a, they're they're putting a fair bit of energy into having now two eternal weekends, so they're putting energy into the paper format, and I think that's driving more and more energy. I mean, vintage is very strong and healthy in paper. In fact, it's growing up in my part of the country and it's doing quite well in yours with regular events. And so it only takes a little bit, I think, <laughs> and then and then things really snowball. So I think paper vintage is benefiting a lot more from uh, attention from both the combination of wizards and the community than online is right now. <laughs> online is kind of plateaued. That's And true. maybe even retracted a little That's bit true. from the early days of the premiere. Uh, events. Although
1: I enjoy Magic Online quite a bit now that Vintage is there, I do have to say there are a lot of complaints about the program. So that might correct itself as the program is improved.
0: Um, anyway, let's well, let's actually get into and, Let's get. And twenty seventeen is, well, twenty seventeen is going to bring us some some new direction and breakthrough because Magic Digital Next will almost certainly have something to do <laughs> with <laughs> Magic Online experience, and that will almost certainly impact Vintage. So we'll see. This will be an interesting year for that topic. Definitely. Shall we? But we said all of that because we were talking about our top eight players (laughs) in Eternal Weekend in Paris.
1: Yes. Let's do it. Should we start from the top?
0: Yeah, let's start from the top. The
1: winning deck, and I was very excited to see this deck, because this is a deck I've been championing for four months now, is White Eldrazi. Pretty wow. amazing. White Eldrazi, to, to take this down. Um, The deck list, I'll just read it quickly, is four Revoker, one Lodestone Golem, four Displacer, four Thought Not Seer, four Reality Smasher, four Thalia Garden, Guardian of Throbin, four Thalia Heretic Cathar,
0: three Containment Priest. No, no, sorry. Of four and three for Thalia. Sorry,
1: three Th- Thalia, Heretic, Athar, three Containment Priest, four Thorn, one Chalice, uh, five moxen Black Lotus, Mana Crypt, no Soul Ring apparently, unless it's a typo.
0: There's also only, there's only four Moxin. Four Moxin, no sorry, in no, ru-
1: <laughs> mistaken again. Yeah. Four planes, four Cavern of Souls, four Wasteland, four Ancient Tomb, four Eldrazi Temple, two Caracas. Sideboard, Trinisphere, two nullrod. two grafdigger's Cage, one Tormac's Crypt, rest in peace, one Rest in Peace, one Containment Priest, two Kataki, one Aegis of the Gods, one dis- two Dismember, and two Seal of Cleansing. I, uh, there's a lot I like about this deck list. First of all, I love Eldrazi Displacer, and he's got his Zvorov. I also, like, yeah. I also really, really like Trinosphere, and I like two Null Rods somewhere between the main deck and side three. Um, he's got all of that. Uh, this is pretty close to what I would play. Um, I, I really like the deck list. I, I think the reason I like El, Eldrazi is, first of all, I think it's the single best deck you can play against Gush decks in the format. So if you want to attack Gush, it's just got the most number of sphere effects, <laughs> and not only that, but your sphere effects are often uncounterable. I'll just note that in the interview portion of the tournament meta-game breakdown, uh, Joaquin Solis, his favorite card, quote-unquote, and I assume he, they mean, like, not your favorite card in Magic, but what was your best card in your deck, he said was Cavern of Souls. <laughs> Which just makes all these things uncounterable. It's pretty amazing.
2: Yeah. and
1: And it makes Containment Priest uncounterable against Oath and Dredge in Game 1. Makes your big Fatty's uncounterable. It makes your Thalia's uncounterable, so on and so forth. Uh, I also like Revoker. And, I just want to say I really like Revoker in the current metagame because Revoker is really good at turning off these these uh, planeswalkers and it functions as like a little mini, uh, um, mini null rod and so on. So,
0: Absolutely. You, there are a couple of notable features. <laughs> the most popular one in our circles, I think, is the lack of strip mine. I have received some confirmation over what? Twitter. That Joaquin left his strip mine in his old school deck what? and didn't notice.
1: <laughs> Boy, that sounds familiar, Kevin. Is that what you were about to <laughs>
0: Nope. I have no idea what yeah. you're talking about. Well, let's just move on. <laughs> <All right. clears throat> Four Moxen, oh my mana God. crypt and Lotus, but no soul ring. Now I'm not I don't have confirmation if he left his soul ring in his old school deck too. I would expect that 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 was intentional yeah, uh, it does to get, avoid mentalist exactly. Deck, right? Yep. Yeah, and you gain a little bit of value by making sure that you're never going to be faced with that problem. I I agree with you that I re- really think that the creature breakdown here is spot on. I thoroughly enjoy all the Thalia's in this deck, but I do think it's correct to only run three Heretic Cathar. Well, I I think I, 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 I usually don't go, run
1: Heretic Cathar, but I do understand why it's there. So.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I I don't think it's absolutely required, but I just I do think this the ratios here in this list are spot on, and I think that this is about the most consistent build of White Eldrazi that you can re- reasonably come up with. Yeah. One of the challenges with this deck, which you've talked about and I and everyone I think that has played it or against it have observed, is consistency is the big bugaboo with this archetype, exactly. and I think this one is is pretty good. It's
2: tuned really well. Agreed. Very yeah. very
1: cool to see it finally win the big one. And it was a big one. It was yeah. a big win. In Absolutely. second place, we have Mud. Foundry Inspector Mud with one Chalice, three Foundry Inspector, one Lowstone Golem, one Metamorph, four Revoker, three Hangerback Walker, four Walking Ballista, four Wasteland, four Workshop, four Ancient Tomb, Talarian Academy, Strip Mine, four Factory, four one Trinisphere, five Moxon, Soul Ring, Mana Crypt, Lotus, four Arcbound Ravager, four Tangle Wire, four, Sfor- four Sphere of Resistance, and four Thorn of Amethyst. Sideboard has two Nullbrooch. Super cool. <laughs> Yeah. That's a tech we haven't seen in workshops in some time, but used, used, time. used to be in mud. One Sky Sovereign console flagship, one Caracas, one Jester's Cap, four Cage, two Wormcoil Engine, two Relic of Progenitus, and two Crucible of Worlds. Kevin, any comments on this deck list?
0: Just that I think it's interesting that the top two decks here had quite a bit of anti-dredge built into them. The first place list with three main deck containment priests still had the fourth Containment Priest plus a Rest in Peace plus a Tormod's Crypt plus two cages in the board. Right. That's a lot of Dredge hate or slash Oath hate. And then this Mud List, which had fully four Graft Diggers cages and two Relics in the board for Dredge plus some Crucibles, which I think you bring in, and also an additional Caracas for Oath. So four yeah. cages plus Caracas against Oath. And Ballista, I just as, think as we that, saw in
1: the VSL, is also good against Bridge. It's very good, yeah. yeah,
0: against Dredge, yeah. I think that these two players were expecting more Dredge and yeah. more Oath. Yeah. And I think there are some other decks in the rest of the top eight that really skimped on Dredge Hate. And I just I always find that interesting in, in such a large event, 150-plus players, that some of these players, I think, were rewarded for skimping on Dredge Hate. Uh, but we <laughs> but, saw it was so so poorly represented in the overall metagame
1: but not the finalists i mean they didn't
0: but not the finalists yeah, yeah. really interesting
1: i, I love the null tech I, I really like that um
0: i would i would really love to hear from sergio yes how often that er, came in or, and how often it was good or,
1: well according his name here is aurelio crespo oh i'm
0: sorry that i'm sorry these uh, player interviews are not in finish order. I just looked at the second person, but it's not the right person. <laughs> yes, sorry, Aurelio. I would love to hear from him about how the broach p- panned out over the course of the tournament. So the
1: third place decklist is the only blue decklist in the top four. And yeah. it is something that we have seen do well at the Bizarre Moxon in the past. Bug. And it actually is very similar to the Bug deck that we saw win the Bizarre Moxon a couple years ago, Kevin. We had a really intense podcast. Um, with main deck, yeah. with like snuff, that, main deck snuff out, no less here. So this deck is Bayou yep. Island, Four Delta, Strip Mine Swamp, Two Trop, Three Underground Sea, Two Verdon Catacomb, Three Wasteland, and uh, three Moxen, the on color Moxen, and yep. I don't see. Oh, there's one. There's, Lotus okay, is in the middle. Got it. The spell base yep. is Four Dark Confidant, Four Deathrite Shaman, One Snapcaster Mage, One True Name Nemesis, Two Click. And three Leovold. So Leovold has been added here. One Jace, only two abrupt decay, ancestral brainstorm, DT, two Fluster Storm, four Force of Will, three mental misstep, two null rod, one ponder, two snuff out, one time walk, and two mana leak. <laughs> <laughs>
0: that's a good mana one. Mana
1: Leak is very is very cool. Um that's a cool one because Mana Leak well he it works with Yeah,
0: it's one of those counters that lets you uh, fight Kind of uniformly against every deck in the format. Exactly. Right? It's a, exactly. a counter spell that's live even against Eldrazi and Workshop. And
1: you can play it off of you know Wasteland, and you can play it off of Bayou, and you can play it off with, with Null Rod and Wasteland. You actually get a lot of value out of it as well. So I, I like yeah. I like that.
0: So and uh, you can get draws. You've got four Death Deathrite Shamans, so you can get draws that are like fetch land into Underground Sea, cast death Deathrite, turn to Wasteland you, and still have mana leak up. Off well, of Deathrite plus your land. Well, plus,
1: leak is also a way to stop Mentor.
0: Yep. A counter that counters Mentor is highly relevant <laughs> yes. in this metagame.
1: <laughs> exactly. I'm sure that that happened quite a bit. And you'll note,
0: well, uh, uh, t- more to your point, though, I think this list is very well-tuned to have maximal threats and answers to the deck Mentor. Exactly. Right? You've exactly. got the removal package is two Snuffs and two Abrupt Decays, exactly. right? So that's all great. four of those remove a Monastery Mentor. <laughs> yeah. You've got two Mana Leaks, so that's fully six Counterspells that can counter a Mentor. As well as Vendilian Click, got, which
1: can snap one out.
0: There you got You got two Clicks, which can disrupt Mentors out of the hand, and obviously the three Leovolds, which are highly disruptive to the whole Gush strategy. And to top it all off, you've got a True Name Nemesis, yeah. which which is just one of those cards that makes it awkward for a mentor to get that incremental value like on the turn after you play it if you can't go lethal, you're trying to chip in for damage. A True Name Nemesis is awful to face in that ca- in that scenario deck- because you you can't profitably swing in a lot of the time with a mentor in two monks.
1: yeah this deck is so cool his sideboard has wasteland yeah. two more true name one yixla jailer one liliana the veil one abrupt decay two dismember two energy flux two nature's claim one more null rod a virulent plague and a dread of so he's got a lot of ways to attack mentor about as good as you can get
0: yeah one of the things that I find very interesting about this particular bug list is it's quite retro in my eyes huh. It is choose. A lot of approaches that people have been trying in Leavold decks of late to keep up with Mentor. One of those approaches has been Gush. I've seen a handful of different configurations of three and four color Leavold decks that try to keep Gush in order to match the draw power of Mentor. It doesn't have Jace Vryn's Prodigy. So there's just that angle that a lot of decks have been trying to keep their consistency up with Jace. It doesn't have Preordains again good point Good point it has dark confidant which is very old school from a you know replacing the preordained slot so it's more aggro it has not quite the full wasteland package three wastes plus one strip so you're going on the the old mana denial strategy of bug and this list only has one snapcaster mage zero jace prodigy one snapcaster mage means there's very little simple card advantage in this list how many ways... This deck has no, well, tr- has no treasure crews or dig-through time. That's true. How many ways does this deck have to actually well, draw well, a card? Well, its main
1: draw engine is Dark Confidant.
0: Right. Which is really interesting in and, today's and world Leoville, of I so three... Yeah. yeah uh, of, in today's world where Swords to Plowshares is ubiquitous, you know, Dark Confidant is a very interesting approach yeah. because how many we times sh- are you going to go turn one or two Dark Confidant and just get it plowed well, right that's away?
1: The, the flip side of it is it the shift from Bolt... To plow makes Dark Confidant a lot better, a lot better. Well, because
0: you're referring to the life total. Yeah, you, right? because
1: the Bolt in the Bolt environment yeah. where Delvers were, it was really Delver and Bolt that drove Dark Confidant from the metagame. Maybe it's time for D- right. Dark Confidant to come back. I mean, maybe well, now that essentially, you know, I was looking at my mentor list. I actually played mentor in a, in a local tournament this past weekend, um, which I, I won. I won the tournament because I wanted to make sure I got to play Gush at least one more time if the DCI does decide to restrict <laughs> Gush. But um, I was looking at my the previous uh, mentor list that I had played and had been a couple months in tournament. And the last one I had had Lightning Bolt's main deck. This time I played zero Lightning Bolt. Lightning Bolt has pretty much disappeared from Mentor. I think I played before two Plows yeah. and one Mentor. Uh, sorry, two plow and one Bolt. But Bolt has
0: just disappeared. and Except for in this top eight, ironically. Well, we'll get, well, we'll get to that. <laughs> but I think there's one other point that I'd like to make, though, related to what you're talking about. And that is, I think, one of the challenges that a lot of Leopold decks have had is the Omnipresence of Swords. Yes, you draw a card, but you still basically lose out in the long run if you spend three complicated mana to cast Leovold, and then it just gets plowed. The mentor deck frequently comes out ahead in that exchange. I think there's a subtle element of virtual card advantage that has been built into this list by overloading your mentor opponent's plows. By switching your card advantage engine to a creature-based one in Dark Mm. Confidant your opponent, your opponent's going to be incentivized to plow that turn one or two cut. Of course. But, yeah. then, but then you follow it up with Leovold, and, cl- and that makes that Leovold so even much, more of a exactly. haymaker.
1: I, I wonder yeah. if this deck might... This is an unlikely thing to happen, but if it might portend a new direction... In vintage because I I I didn't put this together but I didn't put this together in my head but it really is true dark Conf- dark confidant actually matches up well with Gush in fact in in one of the early chapters of my Gush book I have a grid or a table that shows you the turn by turn progression of card advantage from with dark confidant and Gush. It takes, you
0: know, you, you talked through that on the, one of our episodes, it, it might've been 10 episodes ago, but we <laughs> talked about this very topic about how dark confidant matches up with it's, the card advantage of, I Josh.
1: mean, the reason dark confidant, one of the main reasons that dark confidant was driven out of the metagame was because of bolts and Delvers. If, if bolts yeah. and Delvers are gone, I mean, look, mentor can really, you know, it's, it's, it's the, it's the tortoise and the hare in terms of a race, but, 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 but backed up with leovold or these other components dark confidant can generate some significant card advantage and 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 certainly keep pace with the gush engine there's no question about that
0: well i think needless to say the two of us are very interested and excited about this particular uh, list (laughs) because it has some choices that are not commonplace even in leovold decks in the current environment and anyone who's interested in playing Leavold should take a page from this yeah. and consider the lessons from this deck's the, the performance. The other
1: thing, there's one other thing I want to note about it. That is that, from what I've seen, Leavold decks almost are always four-color. And I, I think that that's a mistake. It's not that I'm saying it's a mistake. It's Let me put it another way. I don't think it's a mistake. I think it's a trap. That is that, <laughs> and I mean it in the in the more... Figurative sense that it's very natural to walk into this trap. It's a it's there's some there's a reason that people go for color, but the fact that we now have a three color a three color one is just so much more resilient and consistent in terms of its mana than a four color version. And I especially when you can yeah. pack it with yeah. all this other disruption like wastelands and stuff. So I really like what this did. This is this is doing. Um, so the the top eight so far is white Eldrazi, mud, and bug. The fourth place deck is Francois, I'm not even going to try to pronounce his last name, (laughs) presumably a French name, he's also playing Mud. Uh, The difference is, this is a Ballista Ravager deck as well, with four Inspector. Um, It's pretty similar to the other deck list. This one's much bigger. But there are some minor differences.
0: This one went bigger because Francois has Karn Silver Golem and Triskelion at his top end.
1: And one trike. Yeah, he's got one trike. He's got two hanger backs and only three factories. Uh, his sideboard is all, somewhat similar. He's got Spine oh. of Ishza, Mere Battlesphere, Caracas, two Crucible, four Cage, two Jester's Cap, one Ratchet Bomb, one tormods, and two Dismember. So, uh, so far, we have three Thorn, deck, thorn decks in the top. Right. <laughs> and in the past, we've seen, um, you know, Bug do well against those decks, so fifth place, we hit our first Gush and first Mentor deck. This is basically, this is Jeskai Mentor. Um, pretty standard.
0: Noteworthy. Um, it's got Yeah, Jace noteworthy features are three Plows plus one Sudden Shock in the main.
1: Yeah, he's got three Preordain and three Probe. He's got two Jace from Spodgy, one Snapcaster Mage, and uh, he's got a, 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 Jace and a Jace the Mind Sculptor and one Dak. He's got all five Moxin. Um, Pretty straightforward, actually, in almost every respect. He's got two Stony Silence in the side. Well, so
0: it, it's. This is, I think, a pretty straightforward Jeskai list with one or two exceptions. You know, the Sudden Shock is not standard, but. And the only one. Da- right. But it's not a Right. It's only not one, one copy either. of Dak Faden is is a little unusual, but it's not out of the realm of normalcy. The fact that no. this. Not when you have the fact that this is such a straight Jeskai list and doesn't have any of the pieces of Silent Mentor, though, I think is interesting, right? The 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 um Stony Silences are in the sideboard and the Mind Break traps were left at home, right? This list this list yeah. is not respecting paradoxical <laughs> outcome at all, really.
1: Paradoxical outcome. I agree with that. He does have two main deck Pyroblasts, also- but. It does seem so paradox.
0: I want, to, I want to read through this sideboard and, and see if you can spot what's kind of missing. One cage, two priests, four rest in peace, one... I'm sorry, one no, rest in peace. One rest in, in peace. peace. One pyroblast, supreme verdict, path to exile, one fragmentize, one swords to plowshares, two stony silence, two engineered explosives, one planes, and one sudden shock. Now, that's a lot of different cards, a lot of one ups there. There is one card in this sideboard that destroys an artifact. Yeah, plus the one fragmentize. Two engineered <laughs> explosives, which almost certainly are there to fill that role. This is a very interesting. One fragmentize. There isn't even one in the main deck either. So Sergio has four removal spells in the main, not counting planeswalkers. In the sideboard is another path, another swords, and another sudden shock.
1: He really is he really is all in on using engineered explosives exactly. to deal with sphere effects. Engineered
0: explosives I mean, that- at 2 is the plan uh, backed up with I'm just going to spot remove for one or two mana all your creatures. <laughs> That's the plan against shops. Yeah. Yeah. And Eldrazi. This plan is a little bit better against Eldrazi. So it could be that Sergio had a bit of a read on how popular Eldrazi would be in comparison to shops, but I'm very surprised by this sideboard. I would not be comfortable bringing this particular sideboard to any particular event because you've got, with a single Fragmentize, you've got so many scenarios whereby you are on the draw and you never play a spell. <laughs> That's the thing. You fan open a hand, even if that hand has a mox, you fan open a hand that can go fetch out a basic, because there's a planes in the sideboard, you fetch out a basic planes, play your mox, and then they, I don't know, they revoke your mox, and you have to have a very narrow res- set of uh, responses to that scenario. It, it's very possible that Sergio is very comfortable with this approach, but this is pretty unconventional. I have played a lot of engineered explosives in Mentor sideboards over the past three years. I love that card, but with as popular as Stony Silence is now in Eldrazi or Null Rod, and with those those stacks decks lingering in the control category of their control, bra- or their uh, Meta game breakdown. I just, I just don't think it's reliable enough.
1: Yeah, I, I, it is puzzling to me as well. But I guess that's how he fits in all this other stuff for other matchups. He does have a
0: <laughs> lot of spot removal. I bet this list is better against Eldrazi than any other Very mentor good. deck.
1: Well, I was gonna say I think it's probably also amazing in the well, mirror. Well,
0: yes. I mean, <laughs> I mean, two sudden shocks is nice.
1: He's got, yeah, he's got four plows and two sudden yeah, shock and path. But spot removal
0: isn't where you want to be in the mentor mirror. That's the, that's my point.
1: Well. I don't disagree with you, but you do. But but sudden shock, sudden shock is, is very, very good. good if you and want going up
0: to two board. of them post board is, yeah, is quite that's nice. That's the one yeah. you want. And he also has
1: right. supreme verdict. I think just to clear
0: the board. If, if I were sideboarding components. in the mirror, in the like a Jeskai or Silent Mentor kind of mirror with this deck, I'd probably be taking out the three plows in my main deck in favor of the the sudden shock and the supreme verdict and the sideboard. In the if yeah, you're I the would mirror, board out plow. I would well, have two I would, I would have two sudden shocks, Supreme Verdict and that uh, that pyroblast in the sideboard.
1: <laughs> I I would have a completely different approach. Well that's, that's there's okay. certainly <laughs> there's
0: certainly a lot of hay to be made in discussing the value of swords to plowshares in the mentor mirror, but that gets more I think it probably it gets really, much more complicated when you have access ahead. to two sudden shocks and a supreme verdict.
1: Well, Exactly. I think one of the reasons I like I value plow more is because I tend to run more fluster storms, so I can I tend to be able to protect my plows more aggressively. Like I have great faith that my plow will resolve because I run max misstep and more and, fluster yeah, storms. Yeah, and
0: this list but, has zero fluster anyway. storm, doesn't it? There's one. No, he has. And he has, no, has and no has more one. on the sideboard. Yeah, yeah, he's got another pyro on the side. Well, at any rate. Well, let's go to the next deck list. So the the next deck
1: list is the the another gush deck, but with zero <laughs> monastery mentor. It is Grixis Control. It it has the Gush engine in that he's got three Preordain, three Gush, and the two Delve draw spells. But otherwise, it looks pretty much like the Grixis Control decks we saw a couple years back. Except instead of Jace uh, the Mind Sculptor, it's got three Jace Fringe Prodigy. Otherwise, it's got Ancestral Recall, Time lock, Brainstorm, Merchant Scroll, Tinker, uh, two Mana Drain... 2 Mindbreak Trap, 4 Misstep, 4 Force, Demonic Tutor, Yog Will, 2 Dak Faden, Blightsteel Colossus, 2 Notion Thief. So it's got the Faden-Notion Thief combo. It's got a bunch of Grixis lands, but then it also has 2 Fatal Push.
0: Mm, I was mm-hmm. surprised to see that.
1: Yeah, we, we talked about whether we'd see play or not. Do you remember what our predictions were?
0: Nope, not offhand. <laughs> I, pr- <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I remember either. talking about how I just <laughs> didn't think it was good enough, but it's playable. So I think I predicted a non-zero number, a very low one, like uh, the one, two, three kind of range. And I think you, I think you took well, the over on that cool one.
1: It is cool to see. Well, it is cool to see. I remember you were very pessimistic about it.
2: Very.
0: Yeah, and I'm I'm legitimately surprised to even see it in this deck, right? Because it's just really awful to draw when you're facing a Thought Not Seer <laughs> or a Reality Smasher. Yes, it's fine against Thalia and Walking Ballista, but this deck has. I, I just think this deck has issues with. Monastery Mentor, Thought Not Seer, Reality Smasher, those kind of things. And yes, I know a Fatal Push can kill a, a, a Thought Not Seer. Yes, I know it can kill a Mentor, but I just don't want to be put in those situations where I need an absolute perfect combination of uh, the cards in hand and the sequence of the first two to three turns in order to rely on it. It's worth noting, too, that in the well, sideboard, side- there's no other way to remove those things I mentioned. <laughs> well, he does have That's uh, Elemental. That's, true. that's true.
1: Mentors, yeah. He has, he has so he's two... Pithy Needle, 200 Explosives, a Mountain, 3 chewer, 2 Rakdos Charm, 1 Ravenous Trap, and 2 Pyroblast, in addition to his uh, his um, Sulfur Elemental. Steve, do
0: you, do you think the uh, Statue of Limitations is out on our Rakdos Charm review? <laughs> <laughs> it continues to, to appear, when we at least expect it. <laughs> uh, I, I've said it about a zillion cards by now at this point, but Rakdos Charm is just one of those cards that when, this, when the situation is right, it's a good card. And in this case, you know, it's yeah. splash hate against, um, I mean, honestly, you can bring it in Artificial. against almost any deck in the format if you're willing to, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> honestly, though, it, it, it's a dredge and and workshop overlap, and if you're feeling aggro about it, you can bring it in against mentor, but I wouldn't.
1: <laughs> yeah. Meaning that if you allow your opponent, to <laughs> that's right. That's some serious Brinks person. <laughs> <Yeah>. right there. <laughs> Yeah. So the sixth place deck is the third workshop deck. Uh, and again, it's, it's ballista, uh, shop car shops. This time it's car shops with fleet wheel cruisers, three fleet wheel cruisers. So the only version we saw with three fleet wheel cruisers, but it does have four ballista. So we've now seen the car shop deck make the full transition post eighth revolt uh, ballistas. Um, Not much, I think, to point out here that's that's different, just uh, the fourth Thorn deck in the top Yeah, this seems
0: like a real middle-of-the-road list. I mean, the sideboard is crucibles, cages. It's kind of a compromise. I mean, it's got standard stuff.
1: (laughs) It's a compromise of everything. The last place deck is a little bit of a curiosity to me. First of all, it's a a mentor deck, a monastery control deck, but it only has it's not really a gush deck it has one gush so if gush were restricted it would still be running the one gush <laughs> in fact in some ways this might be an illustration of what the format looks what might look like if gush were restricted <laughs> and so the it has de- one priority is two light yeah i restricted <laughs> two bolt one deck fade and one wear tear one vamp tutor one demonic tutor three mentor one Balance, one Path, two Swords, two Mana Drain Force, three Misstep, two Mystic Remora, card you're quite familiar with, two Snapcaster Mage, one Dig, so it's got the Delve Draw Engine in here, one Heracles, one Jace Fringe Prodigy, one Jace the Mind Sculptor, one Preordain, one Ponder, one Treasure Cruise, one Gush, one Brainstorm, one Time Walk, one Ancestral. It's one Sen- Sensei's Divining Top. It's essentially just like, let's restrict everything except for Force, Drain, Misstep, Remora, and Snapcaster Mage and Mentor. <laughs> it's, just, it's just a one-of of everything. His sideboard has Cam- Campbell, console of Allocation. I- again, it's a bunch of singletons. One Pyroblast, one Campbell, one Mindbreak Trap, one Flusterstorm, two Supreme Verdict, one Dak Faden. Dak Faden in the sideboard strikes me as very odd. One wear Tear, one Hercules, one Ingotchur, one Containment Priest, two Cage, one Rest in Peace. Just th- bizarre. But, but you know, the right mixture and combination apparently gets this, there. I, no will, but he's got Vamp and Demonic.
0: I feel like being critical of this list because... I- <laughs> I think the simplest reason is that it looks inconsistent. <laughs> and I think there are a couple of choices that don't, that don't make sense from my experience. Vampiric Tutor is a good example. This deck has Vampiric Tutor. It doesn't have Yawgmoth's Will. It doesn't have Tinker. It doesn't have Key Vault. It doesn't have Tendrils. So Vampiric Tutor is just a very... That varies, maybe even putting it. It's, it's a watered-down situational answer. It can get Monastery Mentor. It can get Balance and it can get any one of a handful of answer cards right the deck has wear tear lightning bolt deck Faden, hercules recall etc i just would never have put vampiric tutor in this list personally
1: (laughs) well well in his interview he said his favorite card and presumably he means his best was balance and the answer why is blank (laughs) (laughs) but i i forgot to mention this but the bug player his favorite card can you guess what he said his favorite card
0: was kevin dark confidant
2: don't look (laughs) yep
1: yeah you got it yep uh yeah, so this is a mystery to me. Who, who knows? It's clear, though, that this is the... I think what this illustrates is that this Monastery Mentor is a, is a damn good card. And and Mentor, this is the kind of deck that could appear in even with Gush is restricted. In fact, I think if Gush were restricted, we'd see a lot more decks like this. Maybe this is a good transition point to, to that topic. In our last podcast, we purported to discuss what the format might look like if we had restricted a bunch of different cards but we never actually discussed the potential restriction of monastery mentor i think we should correct that error (laughs) (laughs) kevin what the format would actually look like yeah Um, but i want to give you another opportunity to to at least offer any final comments on the top eight or Uh, just that
0: this last one uh, demonstrates something i alluded to earlier with regard to dredge hate the dredge hate in this last deck in the sideboard consists of one rest in peace. Two, ca- one two, cage, containment priest, two cage. And then I guess you would bring in Supreme Verdict. I guess, and maybe additional counter magic. And well, it has balance in the main.
1: Would you bring in Campbell?
0: <sighs> I I don't know. I, this deck is such an enigma it's- to me that I don't know. I can't immediately talk about how I would sideboard. So the <laughs> the simple truth though is that that's basically four pieces of Dredge hate, and that to me is almost like having none. It's it's very close to. My opinion of Dredge Hate is I'm not comfortable with fewer than five. I shoot for six or seven when I build decks these days. Yes.
1: Yeah, but but he does have Vamp yeah, and Demonic.
0: I know. Plenty of other decks, too, and they still run six or seven pieces.
1: The only three black cards in the entire deck are Campbell, Vamp, and Demonic.
0: Which is interesting. I I just feel like yeah. <laughs> this, this deck is one of those that smacks of this Stephen Martins here uh, really... Has a a bead on how he wants to play a lot of matchups, and it, and yeah. just wants to be able to zero in on. It, here's how I play this matchup, which is why you put like a vampiric well, tutor and a balance in your main. Yeah, and one it's really weird one path to exile I mean, and two swords in the main. It's bizarre. I mean, he's got two yeah.
1: bolts too. Uh, we can't. We can't. It's hard it to deconstruct this deck list because it's just a ton of single pins. <laughs>
0: but it has it has certain advantages, right? Uh, I mean, but, there's there's five one mana removal spells plus balance, so that helps against your Eldrazi, for example.
1: Well, if if I were the DCI, looking at this particular event, it really depends on how much they weigh this event. It this event does not strike me as something you can restrict anything from. There's two decks that have more than one Gush. And they both only have three gush, I believe. There's four decks with Thorn of Amethyst. If you wanted to target something from that, but I don't, I don't think that's so oppressive at this point. Um, the really, I like all, I like these decks. They're very interesting to me. The Bug deck in the top four is really cool. Um, I think that's one of the coolest decks in this top eight. Um, I I really like White Eldrazi. I just, I mean, does this does this top eight seem bad to you, Kevin? No,
0: this top eight seems great. I would describe it as I... not actionable. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, we'll see what the D.C.I. does. I appreciate your description, but we'll see how they take it. It's great. It's a pretty funny description. Um, so in our last podcast, we talked about what happens if you strict. Gush, but we never actually got to the discussion of what, what would happen if you actually did yeah. Mentor. And one of the things I took quite pains to argue is that I believe if you restricted Gush, you really would not diminish or minimize in any way the percentage of the prevalence of Mentor in the top-performing segment yeah. of the metagame. That is, I think I think that restricting Gush... So, right now, rough. let's just say 60% of Gush decks are Mentor decks. That's a rough estimate. It's, sometimes it's 50%, sometimes it's probably a little more, but it's roughly around 60 to 70 maybe percent of of Gush decks are are employee mentor services Um, in the online metagame. Probably a little higher in paper. Who knows? Whatever the case may be, My, my supposition or premise in the last podcast was that if you restrict Gush, I don't think people would give up mentor. I think they would play a restricted Deck list that looks a lot like the one we just looked at, and like a hermit crab, Mentor would just find another shell. <laughs> it would go to the big, the big mana decks, and that's that's kind of what it does. Is it is it finds shells? The old hermit in crab fact, analogy. I mean,
2: yeah, with that old chestnut. <laughs> the
1: little, it's a. <laughs> it's a metaphor that captures the idea here, right? I mean, I mean, we've talked about that. the reason we played Paradoxical Mentor at the Vintage Championship is because it mentors harder than any other Mentor deck. And Mentor really wants to play full Moxen and top and stuff like that because you just get more Monks faster and more Mentor faster. You play full Moxon, in some sense, the Mentor deck is actually held back by the Turbo Xerox design, of not running Maximal Moxin in most of these Gush decks because it means you don't run Mana Crypt and Soul Ring and you have slower mo- Mentors. Now, the trade-off is you've got a robust gush a draw engine, but it's not the fastest Gush engine. I mean, draw, it meant Monk produ- production engine. You can get there just as quickly. I mean, Gush is, not the turn, is a turn three play. If you get turn one Mentor, you can do other things like top shenanigans and uh, play other blue draw spells that can generate Monks faster um, than Gush can. It's just Gush has a real strong control component that makes it harder for another blue deck to punch through. Now, I think that's why Paradoxical Outcome shines against Gush. It doesn't When it, Gush doesn't use Stony Silence, Paradoxical Outcome is just faster and more explosive. But I did want to get to the mentor discussion because we had at least a handful of listeners who said you never got to that. So good point. Let's correct that now. So Kevin, here's my framework for thinking about this. Okay, so let, let's walk through this. If, for the sake of argument, mentor constitutes about 60% of Gush decks, that gives us a range for thinking about what the what effect restricting, restricting mentor would have on Gush. So we talked about what effect restricting Gush would have on Mentor. Let's flip it. Let me explain why I'll flip it. Let me just set it up. So let's assume that you believe that there is a problem in Vintage. That's the first threshold inquiry. The next step is you really have to define the problem. So if you believe there's a problem, the second step is you have to define the problem. You can't just say there's a problem. And the reason you have to define the problem is because whatever action you take has to be tailored to solving the problem. That is, there has to be a means and fit. And given the range of options that we have, you want to select the the option that is most, what you call in law, narrowly tailored to solve that goal or serve that objective. And narrowly tailoring has multiple components, but one of the pieces of narrow tailoring is that it has a close means-end fit, and another is that it sweeps no more than... It's, it's not over-inclusive. That is you know, there's a ton of legal examples I could give about, like, free speech restrictions or time, place, and manner restrictions or land-use policies. But for all these policies, you want there to be a close means-end fit if the policy has to be held to a narrow, narrowly tailored standard of review. So the first inquiry, threshold inquiry, is there a problem? The second is define the problem. i Have I listened to and absorbed the complaints of the vintage community? I've heard two complaints, Kevin. Tell me if you hear heard, heard any more. The first is that the Gush mentor deck is too good, maybe. It needs to be taken down a peg. Have you heard that one? The second objective I've heard from certain people like Matthew Murray is that he believes that Gush is oppressive to other blue decks. And so the objective of restricting Gush would be to weaken its hold or oppression on other blue decks and create diversity within a subgroup. Have you heard people make that argument? Have you heard any other objectives that could be served by possible restrictions or problems in the format, because those are the only two that I've really heard, or heard articulated at least. There are others. One of them, I guess, was that people like Rodrigo Torres do not like what Getaxian Probe does to the format. That is, they don't believe as a play matter. Getaxian Probe, this idea of virtually perfect information at all stages, is just undesirable play. So that's an objective. Another is that mental misstep uh, drives certain tactics out of the format or creates certain kinds of homogeneity. I guess those are really tailored problems that are really that is they're really tightly inter bound to uh, the cards that they're looking at <laughs> um, as opposed to sort of format problems or metagame problems but let's assume that most people think that the problem if there is a problem is the performance of the gush mentor deck okay let's just go down that yeah. path for a minute so the, the if you think it's a problem then you have a range of options for dealing with it that we talked about in our last podcast If you restrict gush Obviously, you will bring down the percentage of Gush mentor decks, but you might not bring down the percentage of mentor decks. (laughs) Um, If you restrict probe or preordain, you can probably have some effect as well. The critical question, though, is in terms of means and fit, is what percentage decline are you trying to get? That is, what is the minimal acceptable percentage decline? of top eights that this deck should be able to have. Kevin, do you have a sense of that? Like, what do you think is the minimal percentage do, acceptable level do you for a deck like that? Do you maximum? No, I mean, well, I mean minimal, sure, you could, minimal acceptable. Maximal, sorry, you're right. Maximal or, acceptable, acceptable. Or, like, yes, minimal reduction.
0: I mean. is, yeah, okay.
1: Yes, yeah. either way, yeah. What do you think is, like, what percentage of the metagame, let's say top eight metagame, not metagame at large, But what percentage of the top eight metagame is really the maximal acceptable limit for a, the gushment well, <laughs> in your opinion i know you can't give me a pin are you asking me, me to
0: speak about my opinion or what i perceive yes, your others your opinion oh my, my
1: well why don't you do both why don't you give me your opinion and then you can talk about whether other people my perceive.
0: opinion is maybe 30%
1: I, I tend to think, so we have clear historical data that when a deck is 40, 45%, it's dominant. That's the thirst for knowledge yeah. benchmark. I agree with you. I think when something gets above 33%, 35%, you start getting into a problem range. I think that's the threshold for me is like, a, I think a third of top eights is when you start getting really problematic and consistently above 30% is probably warrants close scrutiny. So I think that's probably right. But I think I, I would push push the threshold a little bit higher. I think thirty-three, thirty-five percent is where I start getting concerned. Yeah. Anything above forty percent, I think you have clear action. Forty-five percent, clear action, clearly actionable. Forty percent, clearly actionable. I think when you get about thirty-five percent, then you in in top eight performance, not metagame performance, but top eight. That's when you start getting really. Concerned. I think that um, and and over time and yeah, and, yeah.
0: I I do believe what I said applies specifically to consistent performance too, not just occasional, which I think is pretty clear in your opinion as right. well. Yeah, not cyclical, <clears throat> but yeah. I would posit that people, many people, who think mentor is "quote" too good, right, and it has a lot of associated yeah. phrases that are used alongside it, like it's it's too easy to implement. I guess is yeah. the catch-all term I would say. Um, and, and conversely, occasionally I've heard people say that it's too hard to fight. Basically, it's too hard to answer. You can't efficiently answer it. Yeah. I think the people who feel a, a lot of and I, and I. I'm not going to speculate about a number, but I think a lot of people who make those claims are not dissuaded by relatively low top eight representation. I think someone That's possibly who feels true. that way yeah. doesn't care that it's only 18 to 22 percent of but, a top eight for but, a while.
1: But... but- but for the, even for those people, the top eight performance matters because if Mentor was zero yeah, percent, no, but a little, not at the extreme. If if if, if Mentor was zero percent of top eights, no one would say that, or very very few people who say yeah, that would. But say those
0: that. people, so it's clearly my point is that clearly those people are citing that opinion even when Mentor is reliably but, in the twenty to twenty five percent range. But for
1: but for those people, for those mm-hmm. people, it's a hybrid formula right. that is. There's a minimal level of top eight representation combined with the nature of the deck that makes it. That's what I was
0: getting at, is that the top eight measure is not the only metric. Right.
1: Right. The only consideration. Yeah. And that's fair. That's fair. But the point I was making is, so whatever we think is the minimal or <laughs> maximal acceptable level of, of Gush representation or Gush mentor representation, you have a series of options. Option one, option two, option three, option four, policy levers you can pull if you're the DCI. And each of those levers will have di- different estimated effects. Now, we don't know precisely what the effect will be, but it's a little bit like the weather, right? We don't. I don't know tomorrow that it's going to be 72 and sunny, but... I can look at 100 years of climate data and I can look at projections and look at weather patterns and so on and say it's going to be within this range, right? So we can estimate roughly what the, what it's going to be. It's going to be rough. It's going to be probability. It's going to be statistics. But we can make estimates. So, if, for example, if we say the Gush Mentor deck, if we restrict preordain, you might say it will take that the per- penetration or prevalence of the Gush Mentor deck down by, I don't know, 4% right? Whereas if you restrict Gush, it might do nothing about Mentor itself, right? So you can do different estimates with different options. That's what's the important point I was trying to make. So let's apply that logic to restricting Mentor. If you think Gush is a problem, either you have Objective 1 or Objective 2 that I articulated, that the Gush Mentor deck is a problem, or you think Gush is oppressive in some particular manner, either because you think Gush crowds out other blue decks, or because you think that restricting Mentor will just lead to uh, to gush pilots to switch to other wind conditions, right? Like Pyromancer or Hydra or whatever. Let's talk, let's let me frame that issue then, or that particular option. Here's how I think about it. So, assuming that Mentor constitutes 60% of Gush decks, or rather, 60% of Gush decks employ Mentor, that is, three or four mentored mentors, that then the maximum reduction. In Gush decks, the maximum potential reduction in Gush decks, if Mentor was restricted, is that percentage, 60%. That would only occur if every single player who in a tournament has recently played with Gush and Mentor switches to a non-Gush deck, <laughs> right? The minimal reduction would be zero. That is, and that would be if every, if if Mentor were, restri- were restricted. Meaning that every single... Gush mentor player who is currently playing that deck simply switch to another Gush deck or replace the mentors with something else. So you have a range, right? If we think that Gush is about, I don't know, let's say 25 to 30% of the vintage metagame. Let's just say 30% of the metagame to make the math easy. Then we have a range, right? Either we go a 60% reduction in Gush decks or a 0% reduction in Gush decks. That those are the extremes. Now, it is hypothetically possible that restricting... It's extremely unlikely that restricting Monastery Mentor would increase the number of gush decks. But that's not realistic. (laughs) So, um, within that range, the question is, what is the likely outcome? And I've done some deep thinking on it, and since people asked, I think that the minimum likely reduction in gush decks is 10%. That's where I think is the minimum likely reduction. That is, I think if... Translating it into the percentage of Gush of Mentor decks, that means I think that at most, at most, 84% of Mentor pilots would persist in playing Gush. Now I think it's that's the minimum in my opinion. Obviously the theoretical minimum is zero, but I think the likely minimum is 10%. Um, I think the, the likely I didn't I didn't really try to figure out what the likely maximum is, but I think the range is probably between 33 to 50% of Gush Mentor players which switch to a non-Gush deck if Mentor were were restricted. And that would result in a pretty substantial decrease in the number of Gush decks in the metagame. But Kevin, I wanted to get your thoughts. Just projecting outward, you've looked at a lot of this data, if Mentor were restricted, how many of the Mentor players would switch to a non-Gush deck and how many would stay with a Gush deck, in your opinion? What percentage? You're saying that
0: if if you start from this the assumption that mentor gush decks are 30% of the metagame, that the result...
1: No, 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 no. Let me stop, I'm starting from the assumption that gush decks are 30% of the metagame, and 60% and of gush decks are mentor decks. Okay. So just use those numbers. They fluctuate, but that's just... Of that
0: 60%, you would expect the reduction to be 30 to 50%.
1: 33 to 50%. That is that is 33 I expect would expect that's the most likely range that 33 to 50 percent of gush mentor pilots would switch to a non-gush deck. 33 percent I think the minimum is at least 10 percent would switch, but I think the most likely range is 33 to 50 percent. And that means that by the way, that 50, I'm saying 50 percent of the gush mentor players would continue to play gush 60 percent
0: So that's a pretty yeah, we're, we're we're getting I'm, yeah. I'm trying to tease this out because you're throwing a lot of numbers around. You're talking about sixty percent of thirty percent of the metagame, <laughs> which is eighteen percent of the metagame. Okay, right, exactly. And you're so saying the, the numbers, a third. Just to, the you, a third to a half of that would switch to non-gush. So six exactly. to nine, which would result in like a, of the metagame would stop being gush.
1: Would right? So you'd have gush drop from like thirty percent to twenty to twenty twenty-one to twenty-four yeah. percent of the metagame uh, using those numbers. Yeah if Mentor were restricted. So the question was, if Mentor is restricted, what effect would it have on the metagame? And that's my math. That's my estimate for what would likely happen. I I think that on Magic Online, there's a large part of the player base that's baked into Gush because they played Gush before Mentor existed. And I think they would continue playing... If they restricted Mentor, I think a large percentage of those people would continue playing one Mentor and Pyromancers and other things. I think that... um, I'm saying that probably about 50%. I think it could be more, but I think that the range, the most likely range, the highest probability is that between 33 and 50% of the mentor players would switch to a non-Gush deck. I think the minimum likely is that 10% would switch out of Gush players, and that would be 16% of mentor players would abandon Gush entirely.
0: Yeah, I can't help but try to analyze what decks those players would go to. Because there's a there's a, yeah. a fairly obvious well, guy got... pyromancer list to be had just by turning some mentors into pyromancers, right? That's that's like level one. <laughs> that's where you'd start and see, hey, how good is this still against the rest of the metagame? But then you could...
1: But you've got also players like Rich Shea who toggle between shops and right. mentor, right. no problem. Right. I'm not
0: right? trying to prescribe anything to any yeah. one person. The next level is to just leave Gush and maybe go to the next blue deck, which... If you're into drawing cards, the next blue deck is Paradoxical Outcome, right? And a Paradoxical Storm deck with one Mentor in it is a fairly logical next, you know, starting point. That Some people are playing that deck already, you know. <laughs> Peach, Peach just tweeted sure, it, in fact. Sure. So, and, and then another logical starting point is to see, well, what other Gush deck is there that doesn't need white anymore? I, I don't want to play white anymore because I can just replace my Plows with Bolts. I can replace my Stony Silence with Null Rod and I can be blue-red-X. And that's one of my most interesting um, conundrums right now is because I've not played in an environment where I wanted to try and be a young pyromancer in the post-ballista world. Young pyromancer exactly. seems, seems like scary, a, a much <laughs> worse card against shops than it ever has been before. There, I there was a time when agreeing. we were singing the praises of young pyromancers. This is the thing you want against workshops. You want to play this on turn one on the play. Or you want to get it in under a thorn on turn two and ride this card to victory. And that is not reality anymore. In fact, you'd have a hard time paying me to try and play young pyromancers against shops now because of their (laughs) built-in resilience to it. Now, granted, I'm being hyperbolic. Yeah, yeah they don't always have it's, ballista, but, it's but that's pretty... that's a really big swing, right? Having a a two mana answer to it yeah, but to to you exactly, to what is ostensibly exactly. your main deck trump card, right? <laughs> like this is their bread yes, and butter. That's... This two mana creature that they've just got, which is fantastic, versus your only chance in game one, effectively, unless you go the like the rug delver route and start putting um uh, ancient grudge back in your main deck which is not out of the realm of possibility but that's that's two that's two steps down the road then it i i have a hard time thinking that rug pyromancer becomes the thing that appears when we lose three of our mentors but but that's complex systems for you so that's why i'm struggling is it could be that the best gush deck is a Gorger hydra bug list right
2: or or a fast bond gush deck
0: right a tendril, yeah, another tendrils deck. It could be that paradoxical storm becomes the best deck. It could be that paradoxical Festa Jockey with gush for the best tendrils deck in in that environment. But
1: or you you could use something like what I played at the vintage championship a couple years ago when I got the top thirty two, yeah. which was pyro gush pyromancer yeah. and tendrils, reasonable, yeah, exactly. but
0: there's a, but that kind of approach is just self-limiting in an environment that's already 20 to 25% workshops and losing mentor because you know some of those people jump ship to shops right i mean it's it seems like at least at face value would, without all the complex systemic things worked out the first thing that's going to happen is shops is going to gain 5 to 10% in terms of metagame representation right it's It's just natural, like, (laughs) people are saying, well, can't play Mentor anymore, I'll just go to Ballista Shops. The rich Shays of the world, right, are not going to be highly incentivized to try and find out what the best Gush deck is on week one. And because of that, the best deck to fight that metagame is not going to be a combo deck. Combo gets worse in the early stages of that interaction.
1: Because, because because shops in Eldrazi because is shops so good. I mean,
0: not because they get become dominant but just because they're increased they'll be overrepresented for the first couple of weeks so you're not going to take a paradoxical storm deck yeah. into that environment unless you are overboarding for shops which is which is a thing
1: well I think the point though <laughs> so uh, I think what you're I think what you're getting at is that, that you believe that the restriction of mentor would reduce the percentage of gush in a non in a non trivial yes, way I do in um, the
0: metagame. I, I, so, I'm trying to think too far down the road because one of the challenges with any decision making along these lines is okay, what if you're trying to tailor the format in such a way that it's not based on tournament performance? If you, if at 20 to 25%, you still think a deck is unacceptable and you're using non top eight representation is one of your metrics, as we discussed earlier, that some people do. Then the question is what do you want the format to look like? That question has an inherent time metric to it, right? You're talking about you started this whole thing by framing what your what you believe the problem is and what your solution is. But one of the things you haven't mentioned yet is time because there will be an effect on week one. yeah, there will be an effect on week ten, sure, and there will be an effect on week thirty or 50, after you've had three more <laughs> sets released and you can't possibly predict what the heck is going to go on. So that's well, one of the things that bothers me about this well, whole the, line of questioning and reasoning is I can think of first-order reactions, people people jumping sure, ship to Jeskai sure. Pyromancer. I can think of second- and third-order reactions. Well, but after that, it gets it's way too fuzzy to these, predict anything.
1: Well, these are just estimates. I mean, there's a, always a lot of variables that, that are in any kind of prediction. I mean, you can't... You know, policymakers... M- Still have to take action based upon estimates, and even if the estimates are wildly inaccurate, there's still a range. And the you know, I can say I predict the stock market will be between you know thirteen thousand and sixteen thousand next year. That's a huge range, but it's still you know you you can you can set parameters Mm -hmm. on it. I, I think what is important to focus on is that Mentor is significantly superior to substitutes. That is, there is a line of argument that says if you restrict Mentor and not gush the gush decks will not appreciably reduce in the metagame because they'll just go to the next win condition that is they seem to be saying the win condition is kind mm. of irrelevant but what i'm saying is my analysis there suggests that's not really true you can't just replace uh men monastery mentor with pyromancer yeah. or hydra or thing in the ice or delver these these win conditions actually matter and they matter hugely because of the composition yeah. of the metagame um, that you can't just like draw a million cards and win with whatever. No, actually, the win condition does matter. <laughs> and um, anyway, yeah. I, I think I, I can.
0: Com- I, that's why I, I completely created a range. agree with you there. I, however, I, I'm not trying to be critical of you because I think your analysis has plenty of merit. I simply mean to say that your analysis assumes well, a It assumes well, just, a rigidness of I'm time. I'm looking at like the next yeah. three
1: months. Yeah, I'm looking at the next three months. So just in the yeah. next three months, what, or in the immediate couple of month and a half, well, let's say, I, what percentage of those mentor players, just do you think, just I know this is a difficult prediction, but what percentage do you think would likely jump ship from Gush entirely? I, just give I My estimate
0: number. is similar to yours then. I think a third to a half, Thir- yeah, is, is reasonable. However, I, I am critical of the value of that information. I could be 100% correct and, well, and tell you I, it's going to be 42.5%. But, but only yeah. for weeks four through seven of the well, metagame, and then something else is going to happen.
1: Well, that's that's why they're estimates and not not
2: precise well, I'm, predictions. I'm, I'm not
0: criticizing the method. Don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not criticizing the method. I'm talking about the taking it back to how you started this whole discussion, which is narrowly tailoring your, your goal yes, to what the problem is. And the... You're just yeah. you're action yeah. to the problem
1: and, exactly. Yeah. It, it, the thing is though, every time the DCI makes a decision, a, a de- restriction decision, it has to. There's implicit in that a prediction. Yeah. Right. There but, has to be. You have to predict. You have to predict. You. It's. It may seem hubris, but they are taking an action. They're pulling a lever. They're pressing a button that says, "I'm doing this because there's a yeah. problem." and i'm doing it to solve this problem so presumably there is a relationship between the action and the problem if there isn't then they're just they're throwing darts in the wind you know you're not you're not having any effect on the world so yeah. the question is 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 this decision narrowly tailored to the to the problem assuming there's a problem which may or may not exist but if there is a problem and people are there's a consensus that there needs action needs to be taken the question is what is that action and I think that the if there is a problem, the first step is to restrict preordain, but the stronger argument may be that it's mentor that should be restricted for gush because there's, there's an asymmetry there. If we narrow our focus to gush or mentor and we just look at them, we can say they both will have an effect, but the effect is completely asymmetrical in that restricting gush has a much less likely chance of impacting or putting a dent in the prevalence of mentor, while restricting mentor will have a very clear and higher probability uh, <laughs> predicted effect on reducing the prevalence of Gush in the metagame. That is, it's much harder to predict, I think, that restricting Gush will dramatically will have a, a meaningful impact on Mentor. Well, I think it's very clear that restricting Mentor will have a significant effect on hmm. Gush. So there's an asymmetry That's there. your point. And I think that asymmet- the asymmetry... If you focus on those two buttons, the asymmetry suggests you. If you want to narrowly tailor, right, which is, which part of narrowly tailoring is sweeping no broadly than necessary. It's like you don't local land use policies don't want ordinances that restrict where, you know, um, exotic dance clubs can go, and yet also affect or sweep within the ordinance, let's say, massage parlors or fast food restaurants. You want to make sure it's very narrowly tailored to what you're trying, you know, to deal with. I mean, that's that's an example of where narrow tailoring is actually comes right. up in law. The point is this. The point is, if you want to sweep no broadly than necessary and maintain the maximal diversity in the format, then you want to press the button that will target the problem and not harm anything else. And so if you restrict your focus to just those two cards, I would suggest that the proper restriction is Monastery Mint.
0: Yeah, I'm comfortable that if you want to rank the expected impact of restrictions that mentor would be the most impactful on that deck um yeah i'm, I'm comfortable saying that
1: but but it also me, mentor restricting mentor would also allow gush to continue to exist at a healthy level i'm saying
0: yeah that's i don't expect gush would disappear in that in that scenario no and i all. don't expect <laughs> mentor would disappear so to speak because <laughs> it would become a one not of a handful of I decks would, yeah a
1: lot of decks it would be probably be a one of in like Land still, it'd probably be like a, it'd probably be a one of in a lot
0: yeah. of different decks. Yeah. So. Well, I think that's reasonable. I think the the challenge in analyzing that smacks of the challenge that we observed in our prior episode with regard to the the actual problem statement, right? Which we went into some detail about yes. how that the there is not well, necessarily a majority or consensus or even a plurality in terms of what the actual problem is when you yeah, exactly. observe that there is a problem. no exactly.
1: Well, that's the thing is I've I've had several conversations with people. I won't name their names, but one conversation I had with someone, I said it, I I so that's why I said that the first two threshold inquiry questions are first you have to decide whether there's a problem, and the second is you have to define the problem. And the reason is because if you just say the problem is the mentor deck, then the that's a very indeterminate term. That is that the mentor deck could be read, and maybe this is an awful definition, but I think it could be read to encompass all mentor decks in the future, which means that if you restrict gut, if you're really trying to target the mentor deck, then restricting gush may do nothing about that, because mentor can just proliferate, like I said, like a hermit crab changing its shell and all these other shells. So I think you need to be very clear and rigorous in terms of defining the problem, so that we can narrowly tailor are means and fit. The other thing, another person I had a conversation with online has already many times said they think the issue is that or one of the issues is the way in which Gush oppresses other blue decks. But the the problem there is that I don't think that that is a legitimate ban and restricted list objective. That is the notion of restricting a card to address its stifling or oppressive effects within a subgroup to me is very hazardous policy making
0: territory. I I agree with you but I would state that a different way is the implication that any one deck or strategy in magic is required to be part of a format is inherently problematic.
1: So you, that's how you interpret yeah. that that is you think that explain that cuz I don't understand I, how I just, that fits. I just think, think it's not that,
0: valid to there, there's no valid standing to state that any that a particular strategy should be part of vintage. I see. Like I could take I completely yeah, I could take agree with that, that but same I do about, people about are, like s- mono red burn. I said but, well, these workshop yeah. decks are pushing so, out my mono red burn deck. Yeah. We need to restrict stuff but, until yeah. I can play burn. You know that that's obviously foolish. I see.
1: I see what you're saying, but being being charitable to the people who are articulating this, I think that the way they they respond is that they aren't saying that there should be any particular blue draw blue okay. deck. But what they believe is that gush as a draw engine is pushed out the whole panoply of blue okay. engines, and so they think that gush if gush is restricted, it will bring back other blue draw engines. Now my response to that is. First of all, I think that's wishful thinking. I think that thirst and in and, and gifts are not likely coming back, even if gush is restricted. Partly because the delve draw engine is so darn good, even restricted with with you know mystical tutor and merchant scroll and jace Friend's prodigy and snapcaster mage and, and dak yeah. and all that stuff. Th- that's still going to be the best draw engine <laughs> with restricted gush. But the the larger point though is that I fundamentally do not think I. I th- let me let me start with the positive. It is unquestionably the case that the DCI is on the safest ground when it is restricting a card that is dominant and oppressive to the whole metagame. But shifting to a subsection of the metagame and saying we're gonna restrict a card that's oppressive to a subsection section of the metagame, that is much, much more tenuous ground. And I think it's problematic for a lot of reasons. One is that how do you define subgroups? So if we're gonna say we're gonna restrict Gush because it pushes out other blue draw engines, then how do you cabin that logic to blue decks? And how do you define blue decks? What about saying, you know, a particular card like Arcbound Ravager pushes out other Workshop Aggro cards? I mean, at what point where do you draw that line? There is no line yeah. drawing there. And the numbers, finding a numerical threshold is impossible because there are subsections sections of the of the metagame that might be 10% or 15%. And so you're saying like, well, something is like 33% of 10%. I mean the variance there is absurd. I think that is a completely illegitimate policy objective in the vintage context. Now this person says, well, Splinter Twin was restricted because it did so and so. I went and looked at the Splinter Twin rationale, and the DCI explicitly said that Splinter Twin was a in, an unacceptable percentage of total yeah. top eights. It completely phrased its its rationale, and plus, modern is a very different format With than different vintage, goals. where there are different. Different goals. Like, for example, they've explicitly said in Modern that they do not want decks that are faster than turn four. That would be a laughable criteria for Vintage. You'd have to restrict... Even if you restricted everything in Vintage, you still have decks that are That's faster right. consistently a, than turn a, four. A
0: 100-card so, Highlander <laughs> deck in Vintage is still going to be reliably faster than that.
1: <laughs> yeah. So I completely... I think that you have to treat formats differently. But, but taking the argument on its face, I do not believe that... It's a legitimate goal, problem, to restrict a thing for a subsegment, for oppression of a subsegment. I think that there's no way to implement a rigorous policy regime around that kind of uh, objective. I don't think you can narrowly tailor, I don't think that you can define the problem, and I don't think you can define the appropriate thresholds, or even threshold ranges, and apply them in a consistent manner. And this gets to a larger issue. I've sometimes heard people say, well, why do you have to be so rigorous? Why do we have to be so uh, statistically inclined? Or why do we have to have such a rigid framework for analyzing these issues? I don't think the framework that I've articulated is rigid in any sense. I think that there are well-established criteria and, and there's precedent. But here's the thing. I've, I admit I vacillated on this issue in the past. When I first started writing for Star City Games, I spent a non-trivial number of articles trying to set out rigorous frameworks for restricted list policy, and I backed away from that those those early articles in some respects because I think there's a lot of judgment involved. But I'm now rethinking that it, just from my years is in doing in my in my professional life, observing policymakers, observing. Uh, The effects of real of of, on the real world of decisions um, in 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 conducting research and overseeing data projects. I now think that first of all, this is a game and this is a format that all involved take seriously. And that's not unique. This may be just a game, but the IOC, the Olympic Committee, takes its charge very seriously. The NCAA. (laughs) takes its it's charge very seriously. The NFL when it implements rules, they take all this very seriously. There is there are significant effects on people, on people's lives, on fans, on so on and so forth. So I don't think we can say just because this is a game, this is not the real real life. I think we need to apply frameworks that real world policymakers apply, which includes courts and entities like the Federal Reserve and and so on. I think, you know, we need to hold these policymakers to to account. And I think that they need to apply r- rigorous frameworks as well. And there are ways of knowing this information. These aren't epistemological problems. I mean, the Federal Reserve has hundreds of economists working for it, undertaking research that informs every aspect of its policymaking. They do surveys uh, of businesses and banks to, to look at, uh, you know, uh, to, to understand business conditions, to understand you know, reserve ratio thresholds to try and figure out str- they conduct stress tests as part of the, you know, Dodd-Frank bill. So my point is that as Magic gets older and as Vintage ages, we're going to have a more mature player base. And that pl- player base is also not just more mature, but they're invested. What's distinctive, uh, one of the things that's distinctive about Vintage, Kevin, is that because we play for a lifetime, we inhabit schools of Vintage Magic. Like, you know, the, the whole Schools of Magic, Robert Hahn's metaphor was analogous to martial arts. He said, you know, you learn karate, you learn uh, Aikido, you learn Taekwondo. You know, whatever your martial art is, you learn it over a lifetime of mastery, right? And that's somewhat true of vintage as well. That These are tactics and skills that, you, that are really the, what makes them so fun and enjoyable is they have a tremendous replay value. And as people become wedded to them, and intimately so, workshops, bazaars, all these strategies, restricted list policy has a much, much more harmful effect on the player base, even if it's necessary than it would does in other formats, where you're trying to serve a professional community and there's a constant rotation. There's going to be people who quit vintage, and there aren't a lot of players to begin with. Every time there is a restriction, that's just a given. Every restriction, some player will quit unquestionable because they're angry about it and that's that's a harmful effect on the on the community so what i'm saying is that as this as this game gets older and as the player base gets older and more professional i also think the dci needs to be more professional and rigorous in its thinking and framework and so i think that i think that there are tools that exist in social science and there are tools that exist in policy making and political science that can be used to inform DCI policymaking going forward and they should be more rigorously used. We talked about last week, or last podcast I mean, the idea of using a survey. A survey is a very simple instrument, yet there are major institutions, academic cohorts, researchers and scholars who use surveys all the time. They use surveys, economists use surveys to figure out CPI and inflation. They use surveys, Pew and NSF, National Science Foundation, they, they fund all kinds of election survey data studies where they big data sets they they find they clean you know there are ways to to do more rigorous data analysis and while i think there's always going to be a degree of judgment involved no one would say that the federal reserve board or the federal open market committee the open fomc that they don't use a lot of data to inform their decision making and i think the dci over time needs to use all the tools at its disposal and i know you agree with that kevin in fact you've been on this path for some time (laughs) so what i'm saying is that this is not a lackadaisical thing this is a thing that people take very seriously um that they've invested their time their energy their hearts their souls into this format and and i think that that level of gravity um the 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 gravitas that people engage with the format needs to also inform policy making and um, I think that having more rigor, I think that it's possible to develop a more rigorous framework. Now, it doesn't take the subjective element out of it. There's always a subjective judgment element in policymaking. But I do think that it would be better served if there was um, a more rigorous framework. And I think that framework begins by delineating what are some th- acceptable thresholds um, for performance. And I think we know roughly what they are. Um, but I think ex- explicating those a bit more would be helpful. But more importantly than that, I think that it's not enough just to look at data. I think survey approaches and methodologies need to be employed as well. I think that there is a subjective component that can be gotten at. If you were to do a layered survey, and I've thought about setting one up on SurveyMonkey, it's not hard, where you, you know, we talked about last time, you have a question that leads to sub-questions, and as long as it takes under 20 minutes to do the survey, and it's not terribly long, you can get a pretty high response rate. And you can learn, glean a lot of information I think would be valuable. I think that's where we're heading. And I think eventually the DCI is going to have to go there for other formats. I mean, I think this is, this is the real world, right? I mean, the DCI is a respected and very um, heavily followed policymaker, so.
0: Well, you said a lot there, but I am generally in agreement with you. I, I think there's a risk of us sounding a little too self-serious about this whole thing. But I do think there are a lot of overlapping issues that you have observed about the age and maturity of the player base. And I'm, I'm not saying that 30 and 40 something magic players, you know, deserve better policy than younger players, but there are things about policy that older players will appreciate more over time. And I think taking a measured and consistent and data driven approach to policy in this particular Narrow arena, banned and restricted policy. I think you're right. It it will be more appreciated, and I think ultimately will result in a player community that feels more. What's the word? I was going to say attached. No, that's not right. Represented. No. Maybe it's just appreciative of of consistent and well thought and well measured policy. Maybe that's it. Maybe it, it it kind of comes down in that respect respect to a a longer term investment in the player base from that standpoint.
1: There's an, there's an investment there. I think is maybe the word you're looking for. Uh, Players that are more invested in the format. There's an, there's a kind of embedded. Yeah, but I agree agree about
0: the, the, I agree about that connectivity. I agree, I agree about your usage of the word investment, but what I was getting at is how the players feel about the policy itself, how the players perceive how wizards and the DCI are supporting and representing them. That's what I'm talking about.
1: Well, it, the DCI's legitimacy—I mean, the format's legitimacy—legitimacy depends upon the DCI, and the DCI being respected as a as a policymaker. Um, and so far, I think the DCI has earned. The DCI has has a very good track record. It's you know not perfect, but in the la- since the 2008 restrictions, I think m- most people have been very happy with the restrictions that DCI has undertaken so far. And perhaps more importantly, the forbearance they've demonstrated. Now, there are certainly complainants. There, you know, Brian Kelly has, has, views what I call forbearance neglect. He thinks there should have been a lot of cards restricted. But I think if we had taken the Brian Kelly or Brian DeMar's approach, we would now be unrestricting cards that were inappropriately restricted, like Oath of Druids. <laughs> yeah. But that, feed, that feeds a deeper reality about the format, which is this is the only format, the only constructed format, where you can play all of the cards in the maximal permissible quantities. That is, this is the last home for many cards in Magic that are banned in Legacy. This is it. Yeah. And it's always been that way. So it has a special role in constructed Magic.
0: And I think related to that, that many of the positions that people have posted online and and spoken about in person with you and I over the course of the last year or more are down to personal preference. You know, the the argument that you described earlier with regard to uh, the oppressing a diversity of blue draw engines vis-a-vis Gush, I think that argument is heavily or primarily personal preference. Exactly. as opposed to a, po- a policy statement.
1: That's obje- more objective, exactly. Yeah. And we're, I think that that's the issue, right? Is that if you have criteria that are objectively knowable and like, like percent of the metagame or top eight metagame, yeah. not percent of a subgroup, then you're on much safer ground, meaning that the decision will be perceived with more legitimacy. And that is always preferable to one that's perceived to be more as responding to a interest group. There's a whole... There's a whole set of literature in political science around pluralism and pluralism and democracy and how competing groups jockey for position for policymakers to set agendas, to implement agendas, and so on. Look, when the DCI takes action and it looks as if, whether it's real or not, whether it's a perception that they are taking action to placate a vocal minority – when there is not a consensus among the majority, that risks undermining l- the legitimacy of the format. And in fact, that existed in the dark days of this format when you had, God love him, Brian Weissman out there calling for restrictions and God love him, Oscar Tan calling for restrictions. And if you looked at their called for restrictions, they lined up very clearly in one direction, which was what, Kevin? <laughs> yeah, Keeper. Exactly. (laughs) Making sure that the deck, anything that threatened the deck, they wanted restricted. It was essentially, uh, you know, people talk about uh, um, crony capitalism. It was kind of crony type one (laughs) policy. It was essentially policymakers captured by a very vocal and influential segment of uh, the player base right yeah and that that kind of policy making thank god has been driven from the format but we now have a vocal minorities who are calling for things that are you know anyway so you get the point <laughs> the james, the james
0: day lobby <laughs>
1: <laughs> exactly <laughs> although we might call it the jace the mind sculptor lobby these days <laughs>
0: right right okay well i think we need i think we've talked enough about this and we yes. can agree up that uh we've Teased out a fair bit of the effects of the the monastery mentor, the hypothetical monastery mentor restriction, and I think I'm with you that it would have the largest impact of the three cards that we're trying to compare well, one it versus have, the other.
1: Large is relative, right? I think it would have yeah. the most significant impact on the target problem uh, on, on without sweeping, yeah, without sweeping more broadly. Whereas <laughs> Gush would kill Doomsday and Delver and all these other pro, other decks that aren't right, not necessarily right. a problem. Um, so our next podcast, we will be uh, discussing not only the next set, but we'll be taking a look to see what the DCI does, if anything. Yeah. So let us know what you think.
0: Absolutely. This uh, banner restricted list policy is going to become, like it or not, a more frequent topic on our show. <laughs> So, with that, thank you very much for listening to episode 64 of So Many Insane Plays. You can tweet us at Many Insane Plays or email us at So Many Insane Plays podcast at gmail.com, as always. And until next time, we wish you many insane plays.
2: We <laughs> game.